that dark side is with me every day, all the time. So, and one example in particular that really gets to me is when I do human trafficking uh, work and uh, talk to victims or deal with victims of human trafficking, and I, 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 I'm in disbelief about what people will do to others for greed. Would you mind introducing yourself, your name, your background, uh, and the work you do? You have a cue card, I don't remember my name. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I'm Yvon Dandurin, I'm a criminologist, I'm a professor emeritus at uh, the University of the Fraser Valley, and uh, also uh, a senior associate and fellow at the International Center for Criminal Law Reform and Criminal Justice Policy. Yes, and you just wrote a really interesting book. Um, can you introduce that, the how it kind of came about, uh, what the book is about, um, and some of the research findings? Okay, the book is uh, not out yet. It's just about to come out. It's called uh, Youth Crime Prevention and Sports. And uh, that came about because about three years ago, uh, the United Nations uh, was following up on the World Congress and uh, looked at different methods of crime prevention. And one of them that was being supported by Qatar uh, during the Congress was uh, sports. And uh, people make all kinds of claims about sports, good for social development, prevention of terrorism, uh, peace building, crime prevention, all of those things. But very few of those claims are are verified. So basically, the UN organized a meeting of experts in Bangkok about three years ago, and uh, they asked me to present a prepare a discussion document to help people focus and to help facilitate the discussion. So we met for three or four days, I forget now, uh, in Bangkok, and. Um, Guess what? Everyone thought that there was potential, but uh, no one really had any really evidence. Uh, the other thing that I noticed is that uh, I knew uh, that uh, there's a lot of work done in uh, what we called uh, uh, positive youth development. This is basically developmental psychology and and positive youth development or PYD and sport is a whole area which criminologists really never consulted. So uh, I, I was talking to my colleague, John Haidt, and we decided to that it was worth uh, looking at that literature. And then we did a project in this province for the crime reduction, uh, BC crime reduction program of the Ministry of Public Safety. <sighs> and we dug deeper and deeper, talked to more people. And at some point, we thought, well, there are things that can be done. Uh, sports in itself, participation in sport is not going to prevent crime. Sometimes it does the exact opposite. However, uh, sports is a good way to get the attention of youth, bring them somewhere, get their attention, do something with them, uh, engage them in other things. Engagement in sport is not preventing crime. But if you bring the kids together, particularly those who might be at risk or uh be on the verge of uh, getting in trouble, then you get a chance to do something else with them. So at some point, uh, John and I said, we we got a lot of stuff here that uh, practitioners are not aware of. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of dollars spent, believe it or not, on sports and crime prevention, millions in this province and all kinds of money everywhere. Uh, Olympic Committee, the big corporations, uh, Adidas, uh, 
name it. They all put money into sports and peace and sports and crime prevention. So we wrote this for practitioners mostly, but of course we needed to back it up with the research. So part of the book is what is it that we really know about the impact of sport? And then what are some of the lessons learned in terms of making the most out of our investments in sports from the point of view of crime prevention? And I think you'd be interested to know that uh, also, uh, I think it's on November 26th, the ULV is organizing a forum on that topic, and it will be open to the public. So the day before, we have experts from across the country looking at our research and theirs and exchanging notes. And the next day, on the Saturday, uh, we invite practitioners, crime prevention, police, anyone who's interested uh, to come to ULV and meet those researchers and get a sense of you know, what they think they know or what they know about what works and how to make the best out of our investments. Interesting, because you think about like sending someone to uh, your sports or whatever they're doing, and you don't really think about the negative influences that could be there. They could be introduced to a new bully or um, somebody who's using drugs, and then they're expanding their community, but not necessarily in the way you want them to. And so you have to be intentional about how it's set up. Um, Is there tools that are recommended in the book and how people can try and make sure that it's a positive environment that's yielding more fruitful results? results than just, oh, we set up a soccer team, we didn't really vet any of the people participating. How do you go about making sure you move in the right direction? You've touched upon many things. So the first one is make it safe for kids to participate. So vet the participant, vet the the coaches and all this, because you've heard like me on the media, like there's a lot of abuses and bad stuff happening uh, on kids, who unsuspecting kids who think they're participating in sport and somehow they're being exploited. So make it safe, one. The second thing, you, you mentioned a really important word there, which is uh, intentionality. If you mentioned intention, but, you know, intentionality is the concept that is being used. And that simply means if you're doing this to prevent crime, well, figure out how this is going to prevent crime. Kicking a ball around is not going to prevent crime. So what is it that you think is going to prevent crime? Is it acquiring new skills? Is it learning leadership? Is it uh, meeting different friends? Is it staying off the street? Like, what is it, right? So, and be very intentional, like be clear about how you're going to use sports in order to prevent crime. So that's the first lesson. The second one is people all say, well, they're going to develop self-confidence and they're going to develop uh, leadership skills. Well, leadership skills can be used by a gang member, right? So having leadership skills does not ensure that you're using your leadership skill for the right reasons. right? Right. So what's the next thing? Other people say, and there's truth in that, there's evidence that uh, when you practice sports, uh, you learn uh, skills. Uh, all kinds of skills, including working in a team, communicating, perseverance, all kinds of things. Uh, the big question for researchers is uh, those skills that you learn in sports, are they transferable to other parts of your life? Right. I can give you an example. You can't succeed in sport unless you practice, unless you persevere, until, and unless you deal with adversity and bad experience. Well, the same is true in school. Right. You know, you need to persevere, you need to practice or study all of those other things. Well, it does, youth don't necessarily take the skills they have learned in sport and transfer them in school or transfer them at work or transfer them in their family. 
but they can if you help them. Right. So that's where some of the uh, uh, positive youth development research, the psychologists mostly and kinesiologists and, and others have developed, is uh, they develop programs, methodologies to help youth transfer the skills to other parts of their life. And they found, sorry, is another little secret, uh, they found that it works better uh, if the parents are also involved. Because, you know, the coach is not going to go with you at home. He's not going to go with you in school, although some of the coaches are in school because it's school-based sports. But So basically, you need to engage other people, friends, family, big brother, uh, parents, in making sure that what the, the children and youth learn in the sports is also transferred, practice in other spheres of activities. That's fascinating because you do think of people who kind of fall in love with soccer, they want that to be their definition. They want to be measured only on their soccer skills and then they go, yeah, I'm not going to be a mathematician, so who cares? Rather than taking, wow, I'm really good at overcoming adversity and I'm willing to push myself and really uh, put my energy into this. Um, maybe I'll take that and apply it to my math class. People don't do that because there is a, a huge differentiation between what's physical and what's mental. And the adversity you face when you run a really long time and you go, wow, like I ran way farther than I thought I could. It doesn't always transfer into, wow, I'm really stuck on this question in math class. But if I really focus and keep pushing just like I do in running, then I'll get the same result. Like people don't really do that. Yeah. Or ask for help. Ask for advice. If you don't know what to do it, ask. But in yeah. sport, you can go and ask a, a teammate. You can go and ask a coach. Yeah. Right. And then you improve that way. You can look at. You can find people who are good at it and try to imitate. All those things can be done at home. It can be done at school. Right? All of these things are transferable, but we, we cannot assume that the transfer happens automatically. It doesn't. We know that from all kinds of research. So you need to assist. And think, for instance, of a, there's hundreds of examples, but, you know, a, a kid in school who fails an exam and he thought he was going to succeed and he had studied better than usual and all this. Well, the parent, the coach, whatever, facing that and seeing that the youth is uh, discouraged is, well, listen, the other day in sport, you know, when you fell down and people thought it was game over for you, you picked yourself up and you went, well, and do the same now, right? Yeah. Do better the next time. Oh, same thing. Sports, my life, pick yourself up. Adversity happens on both. So you help them process that cognitively and emotionally so that they recognize the analogies between the two. And in the process, they develop confidence in their ability to deal with life, yeah. whatever it's success or because success can also be an issue, right? Or failure or anything, right? So, uh, so it's a very nice, it's a medium. It's a wonderful place to teach things. It's not for all youth. Many youth are not sport or physical oriented, physical activity oriented. And uh, the approaches is slightly different for girls and boys because their connection with sport is different and the type of sport is different. Uh, and uh, But it's a wonderful place. The, the, the researchers refer to that as sports as a hook. So I, 
you hook in the, the youth and get his attention and then work with them to try to make sure that uh, whatever skills or lessons that he learns there uh, is transferred to other parts. There's other elements of that, you know, encouragement and motivation. And but uh, and then we did interviews with coaches here in BC, and uh, some of them did not have a clue, but many of them really, no, literally, you know, it's like it was just a technical thing. I, I teach them how to kick the ball. Yeah, okay, and how was that a crime prevention? program well not my problem but <laughs> but other other coaches were totally yeah. uh, they understood they understood that they shared with us some of their own uh, strategies right and and uh, tricks if you want to to work with youth and uh of course, you can't generalize because everyone finds a way to do it that agrees with themselves, their milieu, their environment, and there's cultural stuff. So, for instance, some of the programs that we've uh, uh, reviewed and interviewed, not reviewed in a scientific way, but looked at and interviewed uh, uh, some of the organizers and coaches uh, were for indigenous kids. And, uh, of course, it had to be around something that was meaningful to them. So, one of the big ones was outdoors, canoes. You know that kind, of, this kind of sport, yeah, uh, and uh, or it could be hunting, it could be anything. You know, yeah. different sports. So you know, uh, and again, the, the the sport was adapted to the youth they were trying to reach. Right. So uh, in England, it's boxing. In uh, I visited a program in Thailand, and, and it was uh, ping pong. Uh, it's a big thing for them. Right? <laughs> so to, you go to another program uh, in Japan, there's a lot of martial arts. Mm. And uh, sometimes you might be worried about teaching martial arts to youth who might have a violent <laughs> disposition. Uh, but they see it as teaching discipline and teaching uh, self-control and all of those other things. So, uh, so the type of sport doesn't seem to matter a whole lot. Uh, but how you use the sport and how you work with the youth uh, during that, uh, during their engagement is what matters. One of the guys, one of the most successful program is in the Netherlands, and uh, it's a basketball type of program. But the, the main coach there, the guy responsible for the program, Basically, was telling us has nothing to do with basketball. It's about the the, the food we eat afterwards. It's the meal we have uh, after the the competition or the practice or the whatever. This is where the real work happens. <laughs> the rest is kids playing, having fun, winning or not winning, whatever. Yeah. That's not the real work. The real work is around that. You know. Yeah, it takes something to be able to kind of come together, burn off some energy, and then be able to have a conversation. I think the statistics are like people with their children only spend like 14 minutes of like quality time of like, really, there's no distractions, there's no making dinner, really direct one-on-one, -on -one, let's have a long-form conversation. It's like 14 minutes. And then people miss out on that that connection of explaining when the bully was unfair to them or when they had a question that made them feel stupid or whatever the challenges in their life are. When you don't have the space to share that, it's hard to integrate yourself as a person and figure out when something is making you angry. Because a lot of the time kids just act out. They don't explain well, like, well, these were the four things that were going on in my personal life that made me decide to want to like have a temper tantrum or whatever it is. You need to create that space for them. And it sounds like that community is, is what you're talking about is key. 
An example that one coach gave me in, in BC was, um, well, one point is that very often you have to talk to the kid when they're ready. So, yeah, it will happen during the pizza afterwards or something, but it may be two days later. So some of the coaches give their personal phone number. Now, there's issues with that, and you need to control that and all of this. But the idea from their point of view was when the kid is ready, I signal to them, I'm prepared to talk to you about this or refer you to someone else or whatever. Uh, but basically, they let the youth contact them when when they're ready. Right. Now, of course, you've got, if you are prepared to do this, then you need to put boundaries around this and all kinds of things, but it's, it's totally... Uh, uh, totally feasible. An example a coach gave me uh, in this province was, um, you know, a, a youth who happens to who comes into the practice late twice. So a traditional coach, hey, you know, da da da, you're late. You know, doesn't that happen again? You know, you're letting the other team members down. All this, and this may need to happen. You know, as a as a sports coach for team purposes and all that. But at the same time, the coach was saying. You got to know that it's the second time. Maybe you should find out why you're late. Well, my bus is now. You know, we've moved. My bus is taking a route now. It's much longer. It takes longer. I'm just trying to figure it out. Oh, why did you move? Without prying too much. You know, how come you moved? Well, in the example I was given, my dad's in prison. Right. Well, that's a significant event in the life of that youth. Up until then, he would not have disclosed that. Maybe he has nothing to say about it. That's it. Thanks. Maybe he has something to say. How do you feel about it? Well, you know, da da da. So, uh, use those opportunities, and and it's uh, in a sense a bit like a, exaggerate a bit here, but it's a bit like a therapist. You know, people give you polls or basically a sign that uh, they're looking for someone to talk and looking for support. They're looking for advice, whatever. Yeah. So coaches can do that. Of course, uh, you have to decide. How far you want the coaches to go, uh, know that they know their limits, and also they can't do it alone. So typically those programs, it's not just coaches who've been trained in coaching, it's teams with facilitators and others who play different roles, right? And sometimes psychologists and social workers, whatever it is, uh, while you got the, the youth's uh, attention, then see what you can do to help. And there's no magical wand there. Each youth is different, and you don't know in advance what problem they'll come up with. Yeah. Did it frustrate you at all to have some of the coaches not have that mindset of understanding what their role is? Because to a certain extent, we can say, like, well, not everybody's going to know, and and fair enough, but you have, like, this role in society. You're you're helping the next generation in, in whatever way you can, take it seriously, like understand why you're there and the impact that you're having on these young people. Like this is, this is something we should always try and be intentional, but we always talk about like, well, these are the next generation. And um, in indigenous culture, we talk about thinking seven generations ahead. So there's this important key element that you've kind of highlighted, which is like being intentional, being aware of the impact. Was it, did it, does it bug you? Does it just not surprise you because you deal with so many people from so many walks of life? Um, when people go like, oh, I'm just here to teach them to kick a ball. It's like, that's not the the tools we're hoping that you instill in, in the person. Uh, 
No, I wouldn't say that that is the part that frustrated me because oftentimes those coaches don't know better. No one told them they're supposed to do crime prevention. They're recruited, you know, to show, to teach soccer or football or whatever, right? So they don't see that as part of their role and they say, I didn't sign up for this. Mm -hmm. I say, well, you're in the program that was funded for crime prevention. I didn't know that. Yeah. The part that upsets me a little bit is that... Uh, not a big upset, but the part that upsets me is um, a lot of those programs uh, are not serious about crime prevention. They say it's crime prevention because that's there's crime prevention dollars to be had, so they put crime prevention label on their program, and this is it. If you said it's mental health, ooh, boom, we got a mental health program here. It's sports. Right. Now, uh, so there's a lot of that, and... Uh, uh, in the extreme, I've, I've seen uh, an owner of a dairy, uh, dairy manufacturer kind of thing, you know, producing uh, milk. milk and other product, uh, pushing the idea that uh, part of the problem with uh, youth crime is that uh, they don't get the proper nutrition at home and having milk in the morning at school will prevent crime. And some politician buys that and then next thing you know, they're selling milk. They're using crime prevention dollars to sell milk. <laughs> I don't have a problem with giving milk to kids in school. Actually, maybe we should because many kids are, do not have right nutrition. I don't have problems with sports just for the benefit of sports. You know, that's just go and have fun. I don't have a problem with any of those things, but it's when you begin to present them falsely uh, as crime prevention initiatives, this is where we get our wires crossed. Uh, because most of the things you can do for crime prevention amount to doing the right thing for kids. Good schools, good good teachers, parents who are earn a living, involved, like all those things. You can't be against virtue, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these are all wonderful things. All kids should have access to that. Yeah. Is that going to prevent crime? In itself, no, right? It's not sufficient to prevent crime. You've got a lot of privileged people who went to law school, maybe Harvard Law School, and are in jail today for embezzlement and all kinds of very bad crimes if it's not serial rape or whatever, right? So it's not that uh, having all of those opportunities is going to prevent crime. Uh, so this is the part that I sometimes find a little upsetting, not that much because I understand human beings. And clearly, uh, you know, people are trying to support a sports program. They chase the money. So they'll, they'll call it whatever. The onus on that is more on the funders. So the people who dispense those funds uh, to be clear about what the programs are expected to do for that crime prevention money, to be more, let's say, intentional, as we've discussed, mm -hmm. uh, to measure the impact that they have, uh, to be transparent about what they do, all of those things. So to me, that's the part that matters the more. I don't blame the, the coaches who say, no, I like sports. I like being with kids. I do it because sometimes here's what we got. Why, why are you a coach? I'm talking about the not the professional coaches, right? Yeah. Community based. Well, I love the sport, too old to practice it. One. Uh some coaches gave me a break when I was young. I want to do the same thing. I want to help others, kids. Uh my son is playing football, so that's one way to be with my son. You know, we share that. So basically they get engaged for their own reasons. Uh and if you engage them in a crime prevention program, well, you should have the honesty of telling them, one, and second, training them so that what they do 
contributes to crime prevention in addition to other benefits of sports. Because no one is uh, challenging the idea that sports generally are good for your health uh, and are good for your mental health. Now, there's exceptions to that because people get seriously damaged in sports, physically and mentally and all of that. But, you know, generally speaking, sports are good for you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious... There's a, there's a level of analysis you've brought, which is around the idea that there are limits we need to put on coaches, there are dangers. You, with your background in criminology, you're able to bring this heavy lens to things, which is, what if things go off the tracks? How bad can things get? And, and looking at the literature of how, things ba- think, how bad things have gotten in other circumstances. That's a heavy... We like to live in a world of butterflies and rainbows and everything's treated fairly and, and people are going to generally do the right thing. But that when you talk about psychology has done the research on the benefits of sports, but they haven't brought that criminological lens. One side is making sure that there are supports and that things are intentional around making sure youth develop um, and have those skills transfer. But the other one is making sure that coaches don't cross lines. Mm-hmm. It's a heavy topic because when we think of in Chilliwack, we have priests or pastors who've crossed lines. This is our most vulnerable population, and it is something where it's an awkward topic for so many to think about how do we put the safeguards in place to prevent things going the wrong direction. Is that heavy? Is that an aspect of the book that was is difficult to write? Or is there a certain level of pragmatism that you're able to bring to it where it's not as heavy? Because it's a dark thought to think of the abuses that took place maybe at Indian Residential School, as an example, um, that impact people for the rest of their lives. And so as good as something can be, we take on a certain amount of societal risk and the children don't get a vote. And so we need to be intentional and careful and thoughtful on how we do these things. I'm just interested in, in what it's like to bring that criminological lens to things. Well, I think John and I, when we were writing this were pragmatists in a sense, but also we wanted to, we wanted to be helpful, right? Not just criticize, Oh, this goes wrong. That goes wrong. You know, this makes no sense. Easy to do that. Uh, and what we wanted to do is say, yeah, there's a, lots of issues with sports used for crime prevention, but how can we contribute to making the most out of it? And some of it, as I said, it starts with making it safe, right, for, for the youth to participate. And by safety, I don't mean just safety against bad guys. It's also physically safe, uh, transportation safe. You know, you hear it from time to time, you know, kids who die in a bus accident because the team is moving them in a old bus that should not be on the road, you know, all of those other things. So safe, I mean, in the larger sense of the word. Uh, so we try to be as positive as we can be because uh, our goal is to help people who are involved in that area, not to make them feel bad about what they're doing. Uh, now, I don't think it's that heavy because if you think of it, yeah, there's a heavy past. But if you think of it, we've made progress, same thing with teachers, right? We select teachers, we make sure that certain people cannot teach. We have control over what they do. Not perfect, but we're doing this. Sports has been a little slow in following this. And I don't have to tell you about the scandals. There's all kinds of scandals all the time here and in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, in, in, among, in around gymnasts, football players, uh, uh, hockey Canada, right? So the other aspect of that is that uh, there's a lot of uh, money involved in sports. 
which means that there's a lot of cover-up. You know, people who are involved in organized sports are really worried about their image. So covering up uh, the abuses, the issues, is the worst thing you can do. It may only be one person out of 50 or 100, but if you're not addressing that issue and letting that guy to go from one team to the next and continue the abuse and all of that, uh, then basically you're doing a great disservice. So the, the covering up is also a big issue. And I think people who follow sports a little bit, I've heard some of that with Hockey Canada and the federal government suspending its funding uh, because of all the dealt with cases of sexual assaults. Uh, Actually, those cases apparently happen outside the, the sports activity. And that's another important distinction. You know, there's safety within the sport, but there's also safety outside the sport. A lot of the problems that you see with the team sports is not so much what the crazy things they do on the ice or on the pitch or whatever. It's what they do afterwards, right? You know, the, the party time afterwards, the drinking afterwards, the, the sort of the, Attitude they develop that we're entitled, we can, you know, we're bulletproof, no one's going to stop us kind of thing. Uh, encouraging each other to dare to try the, to try things that, you know, are not legal or dangerous or criminal. So, uh, sports, uh, bring youth together and, um, once they come together, well, who knows what happens afterwards. So it has to go beyond just what happens during the sport as to, extend to what happens afterwards. I'll give you an example, uh, if you're interested. Um, when I travel uh, in the rest of the country, uh, mostly outside of BC, uh, they off we in the winter, we're oftentimes in hotels. I'm talking three stars hotel, more or less, uh, or a little better, in sometimes in a small town. Guess what? In the winter, after rooms, most of the night and weekends are occupied by sports teams, mostly hockey and all of this. I don't know if it's, you've ever had the experience, but it's not always pleasant. Like <laughs> the kids are yelling and screaming in the corridor. They're throwing balls and things to each other in the, in the lobby, all of those things. And they're, you can tell that they are not well supervised. Right, so that's not what's happening on the ice. It's what's happening afterwards and, and all of those other things. And one of the things that uh, comes out a lot is that uh, very often the parents' own behavior uh, is problematic. So on the sidelines, the parents who are yelling abuse at the members of the other team and encouraging their own children to be violent and all of that. And it happens a whole lot more than you would think. And it's hard to control that because these are citizens, right? And you can't take it on the kid. It's not his fault. It was the boy's fault if the father is going to be abusive or, you know, doing crazy things. So that's another aspect. It's uh, the behavior of parents. And that is a big issue for coaches. When we say that to coaches while involved the parents, usually within uh, the first five minutes, they'll say, 
Yeah, but you get all kinds of parents, and some of them are really a lot of trouble. You know, we're, we're trying not to get them involved because when they get involved, it's all about winning and, you know, destroy the other guy and, you know, that kind of thing. And that's not what we want to instill in our youth. Yeah, um, that's a huge challenge around the level of involvement a parent wants with their child. Uh, my partner, Rebecca, talks about how her parent, her mom specifically, wasn't she didn't attend games. She'd show up to drop off and pick up and wouldn't really understand the games, wasn't interested. And so there was a feeling of disconnect mm -hmm. after you're done your game that you're sitting in the car kind of going, okay, like, are you curious? Are you wondering what happened? Um, and then that parent misses out and maybe something terrible could have happened and you haven't created that space for them to talk. And then there's a helicopter parent that's way too involved, trying to live vicariously through their child. It's a common TV trope uh, to have the parent way too involved and then somebody try and teach them, hey, this is this kid maybe isn't even interested in soccer, yet you're forcing them into this because you loved soccer and you wish you were a soccer player and you never took that path. Mm -hmm. And so you get this kind of vast experience. Is it better that we kind of put some light on that and, and have the parents kind of show, oh, this parent didn't show up because to Rebecca's benefit, she had somebody in her life who did get involved and, and a coach who was kind of like, hey, let's do everything together then at school and let's get involved in all the sports. And then you don't have to kind of wait around for your mom to pay attention to you. You can just go have fun. Is that, does that shedding light help or just does it just depend? Well, it's hard to generalize clearly, but, um, one way, not all parents have the luxury of accompanying their children in sport. You know, they're hardworking and don't have time, can't take time off from work, all those things. But they have an alternative. They can try to find someone else that goes. They certainly can show interest afterwards, even though they were not, they were not there. And they can communicate that interest all the time. They can inquire. They can do things. They can, uh, uh, when they have time, they can, uh, show their interest in other ways, watching the sport together with the youth, uh, shopping for equipment, you know, doing, there's so many other things around sport that a parent can do if the parent is not capable for good reasons, right? Now, of course, um, there's also parents with five kids, you know, like, where do you go? <laughs> you know, there's all of those possibilities. So don't, it's not a matter of judging the parents who don't actually attend the games and participate. Uh, it's more, uh, helping parents engage in a way that's possible for them. And also importantly, explain to the youth why they cannot do more or why they cannot do certain things. So if you just don't show up, that's one thing. If you don't show up at a game and explain to the youth why, right? That you didn't go and express that your interest, but you know, I, I just could not go. I, I had to work or whatever. Uh, that's a different impact. But if you simply show disinterest, uh, don't even know the name of the team that your your son is playing in or your daughter is playing in, well, obviously it has impact, right? Uh, now, it's a different thing also. Coaches have to negotiate the next part, which is when those kids become adolescent, they don't want their dad or their mom to hold their hand when they go in <laughs> to a game, right? So it's a different kind of thing. Sometimes for those youth, that's a safe place, a safe place away from parents. Mm -hmm. So coaches have to be able to negotiate all those things, but, and you can trust them to do their best. Many of them are parents themselves, obviously, and, 
have learned as parents, you know, what matters. Uh, but you certainly can equip them to make the best possible decisions. And you can't teach them everything that they need to know because you don't know what situation they will encounter. Yeah. As a, as a parent, do you think it's a challenge because you want to expose your child to stress and challenge and adversity um, for their benefit? So they grow character and strength and, and uh, a sense of confidence. But it's often the challenge that parents have, which is they want to have their children have an easier life than they did. And remove challenge and adversity in, in certain regards. Often, like uh, parents who have immigrated from a difficult country, they, they want their children to have all the opportunities and none of the suffering or challenge or the stress they went through. Yet, there's something to be said for being like forged in fire and that a lot of people benefit from that kind of adversity, yet you don't want too much and you don't want too little. Do you think that's a challenge and sports kind of helps us mediate that? It's, it's a challenge in all parts of life, schools, whatever, uh, you know, finding the right balance between being there for your child and letting him walk on his own or her own. Uh, what you can do in sports, and it's not done often, but I've, I have seen it done a couple of times, is uh, have a discussion with parents either individually or as a group, right, at the beginning. What is this about? What's your role, right? And there's some uh, youth, younger teams uh, where uh, they even have a brochure, right? This is your role. The coach is there. This is where you co- uh, with whom you communicate is their issues. Uh, don't forget to uh, to encourage your your child. Don't you know a few tips and all that. That's not enough, but it certainly moves parents, helps parents become conscious of what is their role and what they can do. Uh, a lot of parents, meanwhile, they just don't know better, and. Uh, but a lot of parents know better, they just can't do it, you know, and you can't be too harsh on them because a lot of parents, particularly when you're talking about children and youth who are come from disadvantaged environments, uh, you mentioned immigrants earlier, whatever, it doesn't matter why you're disadvantaged or living uh, in a difficult situation, uh, the parents rarely have the the freedom and the means to to do a whole lot with their kids afterwards, right? So uh, I think it's more a matter of uh, doing as much as they can and, and giving them tips. Most of them respond well. Uh, you know, I found that, <laughs> maybe we'll talk about that later, but, you know, a lot of people are discouraged when they talk about changing police behavior. And, you know, I've worked with police around the world and, Usually my experience, of course, you have to exclude blatant corruption and all that, but usually my experience, if you show them a better way of doing things, they'll take it, they'll do it, right? Uh, there might be exceptions to that because, of course, if they're corrupt, they don't care how well they do their job. Uh, but if it's a matter of uh, not knowing better, it's a matter of uh, uh, of having done it all, always in a certain way or working in an environment where the pressure is to keep doing things in a certain way, even though that way is not good. So I take the more positive view as I show people uh, how they can try to show them how they can improve it and then trust them to do as much as they can. It doesn't always work, <laughs> but it seems to me that uh, that's the best way I can try to help. Right? 
I'm going to go around the world telling police officers are to do their job. Guess what kind of reception I'm going to get? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it has to be an open dialogue. You are one of the most popular professors at UFE in the criminology department. You're well known. Um, I admire you greatly. A lot of your students, Mark Lalonde, um, Daryl Plekis, all speak very highly of you and the impact you've made. Um, the energy that you bring to certain topics is, is very accessible. Uh, you make complex topics, uh, seem so simple in, in how you, where, what is your origin story? Where, where did this all start from? What is your background? When did criminology come into your radar? Tell us that background. Okay. Well, I'm about to celebrate 50 years of engagement. In, in in criminology in education so with a few breaks in there so there's a whole bunch of things there but i started uh, teaching very early and uh here's a little story that people may like uh when i went back to teaching at university i went back to after studies to the same university i had started with and one of my fellow professors now fellow professors, former professor was there. And really, I had nothing but contempt for that guy. Uh, he treated, mistreated the, the students. I don't mean physically, but, you know, in terms of disrespect and all of that. And he was not even competent. He had given up try, staying, trying to stay competent. I'll, of course, won't mention his name. So uh, after a while, you know, we're colleagues now, right? So staff meeting and sometimes lunch group lunches can't avoid him he's right there so at some point he stopped me and he said um, i know why you hate me and uh, i could tell you why you have contempt for me as a professor he said i fully deserve it i know why i'm too advanced in my career he was in in his 70s uh he said, I'm too advanced in my career to change things. But he said, I know when I, I took the wrong turn. And uh, he said, I'll give you a little gift. And remember, this is not a guy I trust or like, right? So he said, just put a little bell in the back of your head. And when you catch yourself, and that day will come, uh, where you feel contempt for the students or disinterest in your student, and you're telling yourself, oh, life would be so wonderful without students kind of thing. He said, the little bell will ring. And then you've got a choice. Are you Either you change your attitude or you leave. Okay. About eight years later, I'm still teaching. One day, and I've got tenure, life is good, right? The bell rings because I catch myself thinking, effing students, da, 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 da. So right that minute... I left. I put all my books in in the corridor with a sign on it, please help yourself. And I left the university, sent a, put a letter of resignation in the mailbox, you know, the physical thing at the time, no email, right? Where, so, where was this? University of Ottawa. Okay. So I thought, okay, I'm not going, I, I'm not going to change. I can't, I don't know how to change, but I'm not going to impose that on students, right? I'm not going to be like that guy. Right. So I left. Many years later, several years later, I rediscovered my my interest in teaching. Uh, I rediscovered why I wanted to be with students, why I thought I could make a difference in their lives, and then I came back. 
But so I made a conscious choice at one point to say, if it's not all based on respect for the students and wanting the best for the students and, and devoting yourself to student learning, then go and find yourself another profession. There's plenty of things to do. You're a talented guy. You can do other things, right? So I actually left and eventually came back. So that the, per- <laughs> the point of my story, you know, it's a little colorful, obviously, uh, but the point of the story is um, it starts with being genuinely engaged in trying to help students learn in their own way, right? I fail as often as I succeed. I'm not saying that I have a perfect recipe uh, for teaching, uh, but I always try to uh, put myself in the shoes of the student. One second, I don't focus only on the bright students. Uh, I focus on those who seem to have harder time. So that's why when you were my students, I didn't focus at all on you because I knew you were going sure. to make it. <laughs> I was about to put myself in the second category. <laughs> no, no, you were in the. So you know that's one thing because everyone likes to teach a student who gets it the first time and is promising is going to be your, you know, your successor in academia. Well, it's a lot harder to deal with the students who are struggling for all kinds of reasons, you know, personal and background, all kinds of language, culture, all all of those things. So that's where I have been. And I I always say, when my colleagues ask, I basically say, make it fun and try to explain as much as you can how it is relevant to each student. Like, why should you want to know that? Like, why should you listen, right? So the why, why, why question needs to come back all the time. And that works with students who are very well, students who are struggling, students who have attention, you know, lose attention and all that. Sometimes the brighter students say, hey, I'm tired of listening to you saying the same thing, but I'll repeat it until everyone in my classrooms got it, right? So this is just my style. And I quite often, I mean, honestly tell you, it works some of the time, not all the time. but that's the best way of trying that I know of. You and Daryl share this immense respect for other people. This no-nonsense, no-wasting-people's-time, no-patting-yourself-on-the-back uh, kind of attitude. Um, I was just trying to refresh and prepare. You and Daryl are close, so I was re-listening to that interview, specifically the part on how he approaches students, because you have a similar, similar ethos when you look at people. And it might seem obvious to some people, but this idea that you show respect for them, you try and encourage them, you listen to them, and you treat everyone despite limitations in one area or like that they're not the best writer, but maybe they're a great speaker. Treating everyone equally and not looking like other people, like the janitor is less than you. Um, looking, That's something that I think a lot of people feel around academics is there's this sense of like, once you understand how a nuclei works, well, if you don't get that, then you're not on my level. Um, I have all this deep knowledge. It happens a lot in law where we go, oh, you don't understand the Gladue decision? Well, you just don't understand the world then. And we get kind of high on our own horse. And individuals like you and Daryl uh, and John work very hard to to build students up um, and not look at anyone like they're less than because they didn't get an A on the paper. 
where does that come from for you? Is this, I asked Daryl this and he said it's been since he was in grade one, it was just always how you look at the world. Is this something you have to sort of practice? You mentioned that you started to feel that and then you said, hey, I, I know I need to step back because I'm not going to respect the students. That kind of value to an ethic is not always common. Some people, as you saw, the professor doesn't do that. So where does that come from for, for you where you say, I'm going to draw that line there. I don't want to be that person. I'm not exactly sure where it comes from, but, you know, there's a little part of my life, a short period where I worked also um, uh, as a parole officer, as a um, helper, helping profession kind of thing. And uh, I tried to mix the two because everyone needs help in one way or the other, and students only need help learning. And I always start from the premise that I'm not going to do the learning for you. You do the learning. I will try to help, right? Uh, I don't even think that lecture is the most important thing. I never thought that. Uh, sometimes students hate it when I get them to work because, ah, oh, more work, more group work, another paper, another this, another that. But I always think that's the, the best way for them to learn. In terms of practical tricks, I'm going to uh, return the ball to Daryl because uh, I had, when I arrived at UAV, I had never been teaching at the undergraduate level. Well, I had, but in very short period of time uh, in Quebec. And uh, when I started at UAV, um, my pitch was more graduate student, masters, that kind of thing. And uh, I observed Daryl and shamefully copied things. And Daryl, you know, was a very generous guy. said, oh, this is what I use. And you take it, right? You know, or I've got three examples. You want them? <laughs> you know, it was exactly like that. So I learned a lot of tricks from him. Uh, but we started from the same place. You know, we started from our job is to teach, to help students learn, take them where they're at, uh, and uh, try to find the talent and in every one of them and motivate them. Because a lot of them arrive after they've been kicked around in the education, education system and their, their self-confidence as learners is pretty low. They may hide it. They may pretend that they know it all and all this, but their self, their, their sense of self-efficacy as, as students is low. Uh, once you have a few years of experience, you recognize those students really quickly. Uh, and so you find ways to engage them, to motivate them, to, you know, get them, you know, repair the damage that was done. Uh, and I, I mean that literally because in certainly in year at UAV, a lot of the students we get in first year have had a pretty rough ride in the high school level. Now, in some big universities, that's not a problem because they only take those who succeeded at the undergraduate, at the high school level, you know, the top 10 or whatever. At UAV, it's an open access university. Very difficult to not be accepted at UAV if you want to go, right? So you get all kinds of people who come and maybe pressure of the parents or they have a dream, but they don't know and very little confidence and very little tools. They haven't learned to learn the, you know, so you've got to take them where they're at. Uh, Daryl and I had another thing in common, uh, which was distinguishes sometimes from other professor, which is, we just love ca catching students in the first year, right? Help them. This is where you help them get on a path that's going to be productive for them. It's harder when you catch them in year four when they're about to leave, right? So we always put a lot of our efforts and uh, 
in the first year. That is so interesting because when you describe that student who had a terrible high school experience, one of the things I try and highlight is like, I was not succeeding in high school. Um, I had one teacher who accused um, in like a parent teacher conference thing um, of me having narcissistic personality disorder to my mom, uh, saying that I was on a bad track, uh, just a lot of barriers, a lot of in middle school, a lot of teachers saying I wasn't going to graduate. And so my whole experience in high school and middle school was I am not intelligent. I need to pretend that I know something or I'm not going to survive this. And so entering that first year of at UFE was very much like I am going to pretend I know what everybody's talking about and nod my head and agree and um, say sassy comments where I can to kind of hide the fact that I don't know, that I don't have all the answers, that uh, this is all very new. The idea of actually studying and doing my homework was like, the first time I had really done that was in university with tests that were coming up and going like, I'm literally going to fail this test if I do not study. Like, I do not know anything about this. And so recognizing that students are coming from different places at UFE is so fascinating because I identify with the person you described, which was like pretending to know things, not really knowing what's going on. And it's individuals like yourself, Daryl and John that really pushed me to say like, okay, it doesn't matter if you don't know, just figure out where you're at and then move forward from there. And then you see individuals blossom, but your approach is so encouraging. It, and it seems like it always has been, um, at least from everybody I've spoken to, which is you're always calling your students bright and intelligent and, and supporting them when they do something. And uh, for me personally, I remember not even thinking I could ever do a research project. And you were like, hey, why don't we do some, some preliminary research into uh, First Nations Court? That was like a huge, like, I couldn't do that. I'm not that person. Um, other people, the, the hardworking, diligent students, that's their thing. I just get by on the test and then, and then skirt out of here. And so what is that like to see people in their first year um, completely kind of in a container of self-doubt? And you can kind of see where they're pretending to know things and acting like a know-it-all, but they're not. Um, and then see them sort of flourish over time because it, it even sounds like you did that with Mark. Well, I won't mention other people, but the, uh, I, the way I feel is very proud. I'm very proud of the students who succeed. And I'm even prouder of those who had to conquer more difficult obstacles. And there are, there have been many of those. And the obstacles are different for everyone, you know. Uh, so I'm proud of them. I am in touch with many, many students that I've had. Mostly they're in touch with me, but nevertheless, you know, I, I'm still interested in what they do if they care to tell me. Uh, and, uh, so it's, I'm proud of them and, uh, it's a personal pride as well because it gives me a sense of accomplishment. I didn't waste all my time with them, right? I got a paycheck, but on top of the paycheck, you know, guess what? I had an impact. Now, when I interview students, we used to have a system in criminology where we interview every student to apply to come into criminology. And guess what? One of the first questions was, why do you join criminology? What do you want to do? <laughs> and invariably invariably, nine out of 10 students would say, I want to be of service. I want to have an impact. I want my life to matter, right? Well, I'm not like them, right? And how is my life mattering? Well, if I decide to teach at 
better matter in the way I teach. If I decide to go and dig holes, it better matter in the way I dig holes, right? It does To me, it doesn't matter whether you decide to teach or do something else. Uh, and as you know, a lot of my work is not teaching. Uh, it's research, it's helping develop uh, law reform, it's uh, evaluating programs, it's assisting countries and in uh, uh, improving the justice system. So very practical work outside. If I can involve students, I do, and I have many times in, in my career. Uh, so it's not the only thing I do. But when I'm teaching, I want to be 100% teaching. In other words, it's what the coach would tell you if you played soccer or hockey, give it your 100%. Well, it's the same thing. Uh, but it depends on how you define the 100%, right? So uh, people have different views of what their role is in education. And uh, uh, for me, it's the issue of uh, help. It's not an issue. It's The goal is help everyone succeed if they can. To give you an example, sometimes administrators and university administrators, you know, ask questions when your your uh, class average is too high. You know, like, oh, my God, you've got 80% of your students have got an A or an A minus or something. How is that possible? Right? It's not possible. You should have a bell curve, you know, da, da, da. Well, that's absolute bullshit. That's not true. If you put in the time... And if you have enough time and if the students are motivated, you can make sure that they all get an A, right? To me, the goal is you all get an A. You'll earn it. I'm not giving it to you, but you, if you want to earn it, I will work with you for as long as it takes. And, uh, I've, and most students say, I don't want an A. I just want to, you know, feel that I've done something with that essay or I got a B or something. Uh, but, uh, it, for me, it has always been, Make it possible for everyone to succeed. And uh, I fought administration saying, no, everyone in my said, you want to check, check my marking. They all have earned an A or an A minus or a B plus or whatever my the issue was. Because the idea is if you work with the students, even those who are not particularly gifted or start from way back there, they, you know, they have a baggage or whatever, uh, if you work with them long enough, they'll succeed. They will succeed. Uh, there's no reason why they should not. Uh, it's not as if what we're teaching is rocket science, right? It's fairly simple. Uh, and everyone can find a way to, to be brilliant in doing it, their own way of being brilliant in doing it. Does administrative overload concern you at all? It seems like it's a growing conversation, particularly in the U.S., but the feeling that we have so many sessional instructor, instructors and not professors, and that the there are great educators that I met in UFE, and they were like, well, if they renew my contract, and it's like, you are exactly what this place needs, but they're not willing to give you that long-term commitment and a lot of the kind of argument for it is often the growing size of administrations. As you've been able to step back and kind of see, Daryl on the podcast talked about how he would ask for like approval later. He would make a deal with uh, like the police department, have a plan around research, and then go to the administrator and say, hey, this is what we got. Um, and then he said over time, it became more and more, you need it beforehand. We need this document beforehand. We need this information beforehand. Uh, so we have all our ducks in a row. And of course, there's a place for policy. Um, as someone who writes a lot of policy and helps advise on policy, you recognize the importance, but it seems like 
we're in this dangerous time where we could end up pushing our, our universities to be more based on the administrators who are getting mad at you rather than the professors who are building up our future leaders, our future politicians, our future lawyers, our future um, everybody who's going to play a meaningful role in society that we could end up pushing out the people who are going to inspire them. Well, it's a big question. I, as you know, I have been also an administrator and the trend that you explain, uh, that you trace uh, is something I lived. When I became dean, uh, the first time I became dean, which is quite a few years ago, uh, they added a chair at senior management, and that was chair number nine. Right, So there were nine of us managing the whole university, from the parking lots to finance to every program. While today, if you brought all the equivalent of that, you'd have like 60 people in the room or more, mm -hmm. right? Now, of course, part of it is because the university has be become bigger. It has become a university because when I joined, it was a university college. And I went through, as an administrator, I went through that transition to university. Uh, so there's that. There's also sometimes, I think, uh, faculty members in particular have to, forgive the expression, but grow balls, right? You know, you have to sometimes speak to power and, and affirm your your position for things that you believe in. And I don't think that that always happens uh, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, some of them are intimidated. Some of them are too busy, whatever. There's all kinds of reasons. I'm not judging so much as I'm saying, well, it's a two-way street, right? You know, the administrator is, if you leave a vacuum, you're not engaged, you're not vocal, you're not doing things. Guess what? The administrators are there full-time, all the time, even when you're on holidays, and they'll take over, right? So that's the way it goes. Um there's also, of course, there were uh, requirements. So what Daryl describes for, for research, not so much for teaching, I was the first dean of research. So I had to start putting rules because before me, it's like, whatever, you do research, whatever, you're on your own, right? <laughs> Good luck, you know? So all of a sudden, we put funding, we gave course releases, we uh, developed policies, we developed formal policies for research ethics. Not that the researchers were not conducting research ethically, but you have to have a formal process to qualify for funding and to train people and all of those things. So that added a burden. And sometimes, you know, uh, and I tried to keep the burden as little as possible. And sometimes I would have pretty tough conversation with Daryl or people like Daryl who say, oh, well, I used to be able to do that. Yeah, well, you know, you can't do that now. Look, there's a broader picture, right? And when you do this or when your colleague, another colleague does that and it goes south, guess what? We're all in trouble, yeah. right? Uh, so some level of bureaucratization needed to happen. And in research, I was part of that at the beginning, but I was trying to tread lightly all the time. You know, don't do more than I need to do. Don't be overzealous putting new rules and policies and all this. Just make sure that we have a, a structure and a process and funds uh, so that we support good research. And the other, my other commitment, which was abandoned with time, unfortunately, was if your research doesn't involve students, I'm not supporting you. And I'd say that to all faculty members, you know. You want support, you want a, a release, tell me how is that engaging students. We're primarily a teaching university. I know when you were somewhere else, there was another, it was another world. 
at UMV were primarily teaching. So one of the main reasons for doing research, in addition to advancing knowledge and all of that, is to create opportunities for students to get engaged in research and learn through that mechanism, right? So that was my style at the time. Of course, at some point I had to leave. I could have stayed, but, you know, I spent 10 years in that position. So at some point I left, and uh, then it bureaucratized uh, much faster from that point on. Uh, I'm not blaming, again, anyone. I'm sure they have their own reasons, but uh, the bureaucratization of research and the bureaucratization of teaching uh, has discouraged a lot of people from doing the kind of research which I thought was more important, uh, community engagement type of research, uh, stu- uh, research that involves students, uh, practical research, uh, that uh, advance uh, the fields that we work in. So it's easier for professions like criminology, social work, psychology, because we there's always a practical side. Yeah. It's harder when you're dealing with uh, nuclear physics, <laughs> but uh, but even then there's, there are possibilities right, to engage students. So uh, the vision changed, and that was predictable. I, I could... I tried to manage that process, and then after that, well, other people took over. And I'm not sure, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's part of what Daryl was describing, that at some point it becomes so complicated uh, that, uh, you know, it's not worth the effort. You say, look, why am I doing this? You know, no no personal advantage in fighting city hall, so to speak. Right? Yeah. So. I recently I spent uh, I turned down a, a social science research council grant for a study that uh, uh, a grant that was uh, given to myself and two faculty members at SFU and uh, and we were doing the study together. So when we went to our research ethics, that's the way that you go. You go to the research ethics board. You produce your research plan and they authorize it and all that you get a certificate but then we had two universities and the universities were well uav was easy was good in this but the two universities were fighting over how many copies of what and at what time and at what you know so basically i said return the grant i'm not doing this i'm not interested in that kind of bureaucracy around a very simple study and the study was interestingly enough uh, the study was a replication of a study I'd done 20 years ago. So when I did it 20 years ago, it was like a breeze. <laughs> you do that, no big big issue, no ethical issues. You know, everything went fine. I tried to do the same study with more money uh, and very good colleagues 20 years later, and it becomes a nightmare. So I thought, well, I'm getting too old for this. I'm not doing it. Yeah. Luckily, one of my colleagues continued with the study, so it's not all lost. But it, I think it's the point that Daryl was making. It's uh, at some point you just uh, strangle the enthusiasm and the motivation of faculty members because when you have a teaching load of seven courses a year or six or whatever, depending on the faculty, uh, it's you basically if you're going to do research you have to sacrifice some evenings and some weekends and a bit of your holidays because it's not going to happen as you're dealing with a whole group of students and and uh, you know managing all of those courses that you're teaching and all that so uh, you can only do so much when you're teaching in a university like UAV which is primarily 
dedicated to education, right? To teaching as opposed to research. Yeah, I find grades is like, it's an area when you're in it, when you're in school, you have an immense amount of stress around the grades that you're going to get, how it's going to shape opportunities in the future, what doors it's going to close if you get a C- minus on this exam, whatever it is. And then on the other hand, it's like 20 years down the road, who remembers what grade you had? And I'm just interested in your philosophical thoughts on what is an A? Is an A somebody who went from, they couldn't form the sentences properly, they couldn't explain in a thoughtful way the points that they were trying to make, have a proper introduction to say, this is what I'd like to discuss. Over the next couple of sentences, I'm going to talk about A, B, and C. A, B, and C relate because of this reason. And then they go, A, this is what A is and how it functions and how it relates. B, this is how it functions. And then in conclusion, this is why this information matters. This is how A, B, and C fit into everything. Um, and hopefully you have a better understanding. Like taking somebody who can't do that, who's all over the place and they've got an, a part of an introduction and then they're explaining this third point that they're trying to make and nothing makes any sense. But then taking that person and then in the, in the first kind of part of the course, they do that. And then at the end, they're forming a proper essay. That seems like an A to me because, wow, look at your per professional development, your ability to communicate clearly. But often it ends up being whoever checked Xboxes is the A person. And then you can pretty consistently get an A throughout. But you're not challenging yourself in the same way because maybe you have a really like Mark Lalonde's um, paper that he made me do. It was like 15 pages and it's like I've never thought 15 pages of things ever in my life. And so having that first kind of experience was a real challenge because it's like I have to do so much research in order to be able to have 15 pages worth of thoughts that, that that's going to take a long time. And so in that process, I learned how to research um, the kind of the basics of how to how to find a reliable source, how to synthesize the information. In your first year, you're super guilty of reading the intro of the paper and then going, oh, I understand the paper because I'll just take what the intro said it was about and then apply that. Over courses that teach you about how to read statistics, you start to look at the methodology and go, did they have a good methodology? What does that look like? And so I'm just interested in your thoughts on on what progress is. What is an A? Because so many people think of an A as I checked all the professor's boxes. But if your personal improvement takes you from uh, an incoherent paper to a coherent paper, that seems like an A. And I'm just, we, it seems like we don't talk about that enough. Wow. Hard to unpack all of that. You've got good stuff there. But one of them is, uh, this is not about, learning how to write papers. Uh, if you're in criminology and trying to prepare you for functioning out there as a professional, writing papers is only part of it. That's one. Second, uh, whether you get an A or a B is not totally, in my view, whether you write according to some fixed standards. Of course, it has to be logical and supported by evidence and that kind of thing, some basic things. But there's different ways to do this. And, and when you've published, like I have, you know, there's 25 ways to present these things. And, and the formal essay is just one way, right? Now, not all students click on the formal essay and, and you know, the logic of the presentation. For me, the A is different depending on the course and depending on their learning objectives. So I bring 
everything back to what are the learning outcomes that I'm helping the student achieve. So if my learning outcome is um, the student will understand that uh, there are different solutions to problem A, right? I'm going to Mark to figure out, have you figured out that there's different solutions? Or are you trying to convince me there's only one, right? Now, if you're telling me about three solutions, can you explain them to me? Do you really understand how they're different from each other? Oh. Can you also go to the next step and tell me why, on base of whatever evidence you have, these uh, one of those options or way of, what solutions is better than the others, and why? On what basis do you tell me that? Because that's my learning outcome. In the end, if you do that with, you're not perfect with the APA style, well, I may take you a few marks off. And if you don't have the perfect structure, well, that's okay. I'm, I'm willing to forgive you. But I'm, I'm going to check you on this is what you were supposed to achieve, right? Did you achieve it in your, through your paper or not? Right. So that's to me the best, the most important thing. Sometimes, uh, uh, students, some of the brightest students who first year, they figured out an essay, boom, they can put an essay together in no time flat, right? And then you say, no, this is not about how great your little essay is and how many quotes you have and, and all of this. No, I want to know whether you figured that out. I'm, I'm measuring you on your thinking, right? So that's one. The other thing for me, and I, if, <laughs> I know that you know because you've been around me, but uh, if a student comes with a C minus and say, I don't know why I got a C minus, I don't know how to get a C plus or a B or whatever, I'll sit with that student and I'll teach and I'll work with him until they can do it to a B. Not only that, but I will erase the C minus and say, let's work together until you get an extension and work until you get it. Do you know how many students take me up on that? Not very many. Not very many, because many of them just want to coast through, right? As a teacher, you respect that. Okay, that's all you want from me? Well, I'm not going to force you. But always be alert for the student to say, no, I want to be better. And the word gets around, like for the, some of the instructors you've mentioned and others. I've had students many times coming saying, you know, I had a paper with Professor so-and-so or an exercise with Professor so-and-so, and I got an A. So, well, that's good. Good for you. Like, you know, congratulations. No, there's no feedback. He did not tell me how to improve it, how to take that to an A+. I don't know whether I just got lucky or whether I got the right thing, which part was right, which part was wrong, right? The feedback is not a letter grade. The feedback is engaging with the student product and saying, this is the good part, this is the less convincing part, uh, this is not exactly what I asked you to do, can you do it? Oftentimes, I would ask the students, say, well, you had the whole thing, but, you know, that part is really weak. Do you want to rewrite those three pages before I mark it again? Right? Again, many students took me up on it, but many, many said, oh, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll settle for C minus. I'm good. <laughs> That's so funny. One of the biggest experiences I had from uh, going to UFE and being in the criminology department wasn't any one class. It was the criminology room. It was a room where we would go in with our assumptions, our presuppositions about how the world should be, what it is. You'd learn about a problem like the overrepresentation of Indigenous people, and then we'd sit down and we'd start trying to figure out what the right answer to address it is. That is where I feel like so much of my learning took place. 
how to disagree with a person, how to make articulate points, how not to have that ruin a friendship, how to navigate disagreements because they're legitimate disagreements about how do we improve what's going on. And I find that that has somewhat, and this is going to be a bold statement to a researcher, immunized a lot of my peer group who was a part of that from polarization because we get really deeply how complicated people are. You'd be sitting and talking to someone about the proposed solutions and they just couldn't disagree with you more. And But then you go have lunch after and you recognize that it's it's about this. Uh, it's very much like the Bugs Bunny, um, you go to work, you disagree, and then afterwards you're you're fair and you're reasonable, but it's about the issues. And we learned through that, I think unconsciously, that we are not our thoughts. These are perspectives we have, lived experiences where we feel a certain way about an issue when we think that it should be addressed this way because it would make us um, and our childhood experiences better. But through that environment, it felt like we just had an opportunity to disagree in a healthy way. Seems like that could be lacking in some regards. I'm interested because I'd see you, you'd walk through, you'd hear the spirited kind of debates going on, um, and you'd always walk away with a smile. I'm just interested, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on the role that that plays in people's ability to communicate and and where we are? I think that's probably the most important part is the students that, the work that students do on their own or with each other. And with each other is better because what? You know, people are more or less at the same level, same age, same experience of life, you know, all of those other things. So that work is is really important. It's where most of the learning takes place. Most of my courses involve group work uh, and a lot of it uh, because, and not just, oh, big paper at the end, work in a group because that doesn't do anything. One person takes the lead, the other ones go for breakfast, right? It's Forcing people to have that kind of interaction, engage, fight, da-da-da, present it in class. Not just one guy, you know, the star person presenting it on behalf of the group, but all of them. And then pointing out to them sometimes that, oh, you're not saying the same thing. Did you not discuss that? Right? That kind of thing. So the learning in groups is amazing. And also, particularly, if the learning in group then returns to the class as a whole, either virtually or in, in person. And then you have that discussion and a clash of ideas and all of those other things. So I think this is important. The caveat is that uh, a lot of students uh, don't haven't learned to work in groups in high school. And, uh, of course, it's an age group that can be awkward in terms of connecting with other youth. And there's other subtext happening there in the classroom at that, at that age group, right? Uh, so a lot of students resist working in groups and hate it. I know students who, uh, actually, who told me afterwards, oh, I didn't take that class with you because I knew that you were going to force us to work in group uh, or to present the other nightmares. You're going to force us to present my ideas in class. Well, I don't, I'm not comfortable doing that, right? So, and I, I'll joke, but it, it's true. One day we explained to the class, but actually held the student by the hand as she was presenting. And I said, okay, I'm going to be in front between you and the class. Look at me as you present. Just, you gave me an excellent presentation. Now there's no reason you can't repeat it in class. So just pretend there's nobody else there. Just talk to me while I'm there. That was extreme, right? But many, many students have this 
difficulty working in groups. Their experience has not been so good. They like the self-confidence. They know that there's some superstar in the group that will take over. All of those things that you will deal with in your life, you know, in your professional life. So it's important for them to break those walls, right, and learn how to do it. And uh, you cannot be complacent. You can't just listen to them and say, oh, no, you don't want to present. That's okay. Do something else. No, no, just... The, 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 you have to challenge them to do it and accompany them as they do it, right? You know, now say, oh, why not you jump from the nine meter high jump? You know, no, no, no. let's start from the side of the swimming pool first and then we, we go how far we go. So again, it's accompanying the students and then, but the, I say those two things because it's a bit of a caveat. You can't really force you can't take the horse to the lake, you can't force it to drink. So a lot of students are not yet at the point where group work works for them, teamwork, that kind of things. And uh, presentation before a class, uh, even writing, you know, some of them still write painfully. Uh, they don't like to share their written text. You know, They don't have a choice to give it to the instructor. But you say, can I share it with your colleagues? The answer is no. I no. I, this is my text, yeah. and you know why? It's because they don't they don't feel confident, right? To so working with this is part of teaching. This is uh, okay. You don't feel confident. What would it take for you to be confident? Do you trust my opinion? I'll tell you what's strong, what's not strong. Yes, you know, work. Let's work with that. Yeah. That's so interesting because you see all different people's dynamics kind of taking place and the challenges people have. It seems like confidence is so lacking. But have you seen, from your perspective, a growth in polarization? As someone who's used to disagreeing on very important topics, like uh, some of the topics I hope we can dive into is like uh, cannabis, um, the challenges with human trafficking, uh, organized crime, like not small issues. Yet it seems like we have trouble right now as, as a population disagreeing on, on silly things. It, it seems like we can't even get on to the substantive topics right now because we're getting stuck on on trivial issues rather than the substantial challenges facing us today. Have you seen an increase in that, or 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 what yeah. are you seeing? Well, I have to guard against the angry old man syndrome that, <laughs> you know, in the good old days, none of that happened. That's not true. There was a lot of that crap happening, polarization and all this. But I think it's taken a different turn today. And you see it also in the classroom because of the social media. People enter their bubble and stay in there. So part of the role of the university, the classroom and all that is to force people to think outside their bubble. And I'll take that as a segue to another point of teaching for me, which is sometimes I wish I would teach uh, something different like nuclear physics. Why? Because uh, when I teach youth crime, uh, organized crime, sentencing, whatever, everyone enters a classroom with an opinion. They know what's wrong, right? So part of my work is to challenge that. I call that shaking the atoms loose. You know, make room in the brains of the student to think about this differently. You know, if they're going to, st- to stick to their opinion, uh, and I don't want them to accept my opinion. I'm just saying, oh, it's not that I know more, but, you know, open your mind to different possibilities. Let's talk about those, right? Or let's consider the facts or let's consider the evidence and all that. So very often students in criminology, particularly, enter the classroom with uh, 
with uh, views of what the problem is, right? Too much of this, not enough of that, whatever. And uh, it's hard to get them to let go of that, create room for new ideas, for a different perspective, for approaching the issue from a different place. So one of the ways to do that, of course, is to try to persuade them. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Another way is to use the group. Because other people in the group will come with different biases, different views. So yeah. let them work it out, right? Give them a challenge to try to find common grounds and that kind of thing. Now, some again, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work. But it's really a matter matter of um, uh, when you talk about the polarization, I, I sense now, and I don't know if I mentioned before, but at this point, I'm not teaching anymore. Uh, and uh, I sense that the positions that students adopt, ideological than others, are really far more rigid, uh, far more difficult to challenge, and to uh, and therefore it's more difficult to create a space where the frank discussions can happen. The other thing I'm afraid uh, is that. Because the situation is polarized, there's a lot of self-censorship among educators. You know, I'm not going to talk about this because someone's going to call me racist or call me this or call me that. You know, so there's a lot of faculty, and I, I again, I don't name names, and it's not particular, peculiar, particular to UFV who basically have retreated into a safe space. You know, I'm not going to challenge students on anything because I don't want to be canceled. Uh, I don't want, you know, my opinion, my view may not be that what is currently in trend, trending on, on social media. So I, I feel also that not only is there the polarization, uh, but there's uh, less... Uh, of a tendency for professors, instructors, uh, practicum supervisors, everyone involved in education, less of a tendency to challenge those things because they don't feel safe doing it. And uh, and I don't mean imposing the authority. I know better. I've got three PhDs. I know better. This is not what I'm talking about. It's like, let's have a discussion openly. Like, tell me what your facts are. Tell me what your evidence is. Tell me why you think that, right? You know, let's have that discussion. Uh, I feel that it's a little more difficult for faculty members to do that. And whether it is or not, I can confirm because I talk to many faculty members that they think it's more difficult. Yeah. I don't know if it's more difficult because how do I know? But I know that they think it's more difficult and therefore many of them don't dare push the envelope because why? You know, like who's who's asking me to push the envelope? Like why am I all of a sudden being in charge of challenging the students? The main thing now is let the students believe what they want to believe, right? Yeah. So, so that's a, that to me that is a concern more than the polarization. There's always some polarization, but perhaps one can argue, and I think it would be fair to say that polarization is uh, getting worse, and uh, because of social media and because people basically enter a bubble that without even knowing they're in a bubble, most of them, and and can't find a way out. Right? It seems like it's tougher right now to fall forwards 
Like, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to... I'm certain that I had positions in my undergrad that were incorrect. And if I looked back on them now or if somebody said, hey, you said this thing five years ago, seven years ago, what are your thoughts? I'd be like, ah, I was, I was wrong. And it wouldn't be something that would devastate me. But when you have... It seems like we've kind of evolved because from my understanding, when like John Haidt and, and people were in school, you were intimidated by the professor. My goodness, to, to go into office hours by John's kind of story, it was, what are you doing here? Who who gave you the right to just walk into my office? Like, it was a very, the, the professor is at the top of the hierarchy. You don't bother them. You don't waste their time. Um, and then we have this golden period where come ask questions, learn, let's have an open dialogue, let's challenge preconceived notions, let's dive into all of it. This is what I'm here for. This is what the hour and a half uh, like office hours is here for. Let's do this. And now it seems like we're in a time where people are really concerned about offending people, miscommunicating, being wrong on an issue. One of the the best moments between you and I, and this this goes to like an issue that could be perceived as political, is the overrepresentation of Indigenous people. Because when I brought you my paper, I was like, it doesn't seem like the culture in my peer group was very much like they're overrepresented. Well, we should just release them so they represent their exact amount. And when I brought this to you, I was like, but the, it's violent crimes. It's not petty crimes. It's not they stole a candy bar. It's that they absolutely abused someone to the point where like their face was unrecognized. Like this is a this is a problem. You don't want this person just walking down the road. What would that do to the victim? And so and you were like, yeah, this is this is a problem. Like this is there's not a correct answer right now that we can just use to fix the problem. And so, but within the peer group, it was like no, we should just release them. And this information, when I brought it forward, was very uncomfortable because it's like, well, then what do we do? How do we fix it? And there is a guilt I think a lot of people feel right now who are outside of the Indigenous community who want better. They want this not to be a problem anymore in the best sense. They want, they're empathetic, they understand, and they want to see change. And it's like the change in regards to like Indigenous people in the criminal justice system is going to take years to address if we're going to re-educate a community, help them have the tools to do better and not commit these crimes. As a native court worker, I work with people who have sexual interference with with minors, serious crimes, and assaults on domestic assaults against their wife. Like these are not, the the crimes that I'm dealing with are not simple. They're not easy to resolve. They're not going to be fixed by just having them leave that day because they're going to be charged with it again. If we don't address the underlying factors, which brings life to Galadu, but it's a complex problem with water. And I feel comfortable. I don't know if I'd feel comfortable talking about this if I wasn't indigenous, but the water problem around indigenous communities, some indigenous communities don't have clean water. One of the challenges is around being able to have clean water plants run by the community. If you're going to bring in a water treatment facility, it's going to be tens of millions of dollars, but then you have to have the people to run it. And uh, as I spoke to somebody about, they said the long-term cost of maintaining a building is way more than the upfront cost of just building it. And so having the staff to manage it, well, if your community isn't wealthy, if you're not a community that's got a ton of economic development, 
who are you going to hire to run this building? Okay, well, you need to bring in people because your community doesn't have the information. Well, now you have to pay them even more to move. Say you're in BC, you need to bring someone in from Alberta. Now you have to pay them more to make that trip worth it. They have to relocate from their family. Now it's an even bigger cost. My understanding was in Saskatchewan, they tried to just build a water treatment facility and then they went, oh, no one's going to run it. And now it's just an empty building that's not used because they didn't think that long term. And it frustrates me when I hear the leader of the federal NDP say, we just need to pay more. And it's like, this is a problem because indigenous communities want their community members having those great jobs. So we have to build the community outwards to have a long term solution. But Again, clean water seems like a topic it's hard for people to approach because people will just sit there, cross their arms and go, well, they should just have clean water. And it's like, this is, this is a complex issue. And it seems like we're struggling right now to embrace the complexity of problems. And yet that is something to me, you've always done a good job on is just sort of embracing that complexity. So I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Well, people are always looking for simple solutions. And unfortunately, the world is are they ever that simple, right? And when it comes to helping communities, and I, I'll move away for a minute from the indigenous community, and I've worked with in at least 100 different countries, many of them developing countries, and it's always the same thing. You know, like some expert from somewhere else is going to tell you the best solution is X. And it, most of the time, it simply doesn't work in that context. So it's not translated into something that makes sense for that community because of level of technology, level of development, whatever. I, I, I'll give you an example. In South Sudan, we where we've worked for seven years developing, um, doing justice reform and correctional reform, the Americans who were funding the project kept wanting, kept wanting to give us computers to give to the prison authorities to keep track of inmates. Didn't matter how many times I told them they don't have electricity. So <laughs> no point, right? <laughs> what they need is a letter-bound book <laughs> that is uh, of a certain quality of paper because they have a lot of insects there that feed on paper, right? And a safe place to put it, a dry place. That's what they need for them to keep track of their prisoner, which is a very important thing, right? Uh, including end of sentence. Some some inmates were not being released because people lost track of when it was they were supposed to be released, literally, right? So don't give me a computer. Well, we give you a generator to do the computers. Yeah, and where do they get the gas for the <laughs> Like it goes on and on, right? Don't give them something they don't need, a solution that is almost perfect, doesn't work there. Another example of this, I know it's um, going away from your water thing, but a no. similar kind of things that people think that the solutions can be parachuted from elsewhere. So we're working in uh, some Caribbean countries, and uh, they were developing safe houses uh, for uh, battered women and women who were in a trust situation with domestically or otherwise. Some, some of them have been trafficked. So... In Canada, what you try to do in the U.S. is you try to find a place that no one knows about and you hide them somewhere, right, for a short period of time, and that becomes a safe place. Well, where do you hide someone in a small island state? You know, there's no way, like, anywhere people will know where you are, what you're doing. There's no way to hide in a community. What was the solution they found? 
build it right next to the police station with an adjoining wall, if you can, right? And then you say to the cops, you make sure that no one gets in there, right? So it's a safe house of a totally different variety than what we think here. But we could have given them advice on how to build a safe house, you know, in a safe little place that no one knows about, and it would never have worked, right? So oftentimes, of course, the communities don't have all the solutions. they saying, well, return to the community, tell them to find their own solution. Well, that's, that's a dream. Most communities don't have that wherewithal to develop their own solutions. They're not there, right? It's also a question of development. So what have you got? You need different experts who go there and say, I don't know what your solution is, but can I help you find it, right? Not... Here's a solution. It works in Wisconsin and in Edmonton, so why don't you try that? It's the same thing with the water situation. Now, at some point, there are technologies that can help those communities, and of course, they may not be aware of them. How do they know all these new technologies and means and all that? So, yeah, they need expertise. They need people who will come and give them opportunities and give them options and inform them about some of the different things that they could consider. But in the end, it really has to be helping people solve their own problems. And I told you earlier, it's helping students do their own learning. And if we talk about my work in international uh, uh, criminal justice reform, that's lesson number one. You're not going there to tell them how to do it. You're going there to help them figure out how they want to do it. And I don't know how many times in my career I would say, hey, listen, guys, it's your system. You figure it out. You know, I'm not going to make decisions for you. It's not my system. I'm not going to live with it. I'm leaving. My plane is next Monday, right? You know, you figure it out. Now, let me tell you how I can help. You know, and if you know other ways I could help, well, tell me, right? And you'd be surprised how few people in the justice reform uh, world, international world, uh, have that approach. Uh, basically, it's, I've got it all figured out, I'll come and tell you, and then I'm leaving, right? Yeah, that ego becomes huge, and it seems like something that you're very good at managing, where it probably catches people off guard to a certain extent of like, Hold on, like, I thought, because people are used to having someone drop the books on the table and go, the five things you need to do to fix the problem is this. And once you do these things, you're going to have a flourishing economy. And uh, I think it's like we often reference other countries around drug reform and how, how can we deal with drugs properly. And it's like, well, we're not that country. And so we have to figure out what's going to work for our country. And it's like, that doesn't seem always well known or understood or that it seems like you just go in with humility, which is just so refreshing to hear. Yeah. Well, I guess humility has to do something with it, but that's not my main virtue. On the contrary, I've got a big ego, but I figured out that one of the ways to really help is to help people help themselves. It's not to give them the solutions because as soon as you're gone, Either the problem comes back or another problem comes back. And if they depend always on outside help and outside people to tell them what to do, then you're enabling some form of, you know, disempowerment. That's not the goal. The goal is to help them. The other thing is they will have to live with the results afterwards. You don't. Like, as an expert, you know, you, you fly out, you leave, you go to the next community. 
so it's important to recognize that the choices that they make are going to affect their lives, not yours. And therefore, they belong to them totally. And very often, of course, where does the money come from for doing that work? It comes from the UN, from countries, Canada, US, whatever, giving money to help, right? Well, those funding agencies not do not always have that approach to it. Right? It says, oh, you go out there and give them the five steps to success and, you know, get out of there in three weeks, right? And you say, well, it's a little more complicated than that. Then all of a sudden they say, well, maybe we can find another consultant who is not so complicated. You know, it's just going to tell them one, two, three, right? Uh, and uh, nothing is ever that simple. The, one of the things that I, I take pride of is that uh, with all the communities that I've worked, I say I, but, you know, there's other people with me, like I don't do that alone. Uh, but in all the communities we've worked, uh, it's never happened that we've not been asked again. Right. Never. Not a single time. Uh, eventually, sometimes it's many years later, but they say, you know what you did? <laughs> you know, that was really helpful. Can you come back? You know, can you help us again with, with this? Uh, because they appreciate the approach of empowering as opposed to trying to resolve the problem for them. Yeah, that makes sense. What did you mean by you have an ego? What, what, because it seems like you're very humble in how you approach things when it comes to students of getting out of your own way and letting them focus on your own education. So what did you mean by that? It's all BS. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have an ego, but it's, you know, uh, I, as I told you earlier, I take pride in what I do. So of course I, I give myself credit for a lot of that, right? I, I'm proud of what I do. I, I, it requires effort. I'm prepared to make the effort, but, uh, the limit really is that I remind myself that in the end, uh, success depends on other people, not just me. So I try to empower people, but then I respect the fact that it's their learning, their system, their responsibility, all of that. And it's, it's an amazing opportunity to be an educator, really. It's an amazing thing that we can get paid to do that and then the other thing is the work that i do uh, in justice reforms with the international center and other organization uh, it's basically the same but at the state level at the institutional level but you're basically teaching still right it's it's a form of teaching of course in order to teach you have to do research and you have to write policy briefs and all those things now the tools are a little different but it's still helping people learn and figure out things for themselves. When did you choose criminology? When did that come onto your radar as the path that you wanted to take? Yeah, well, that's another long story, but I'll try to make it short. First, I, um, uh, when I was about eight year old, I was coming back from the beach with my parents driving, and we drove by what was then Saint-Vincent-Paul Penitentiary, north of Montreal, big federal penitentiary. And then they stopped all the cars because three inmates had escaped. And they, you know, inspected every car. And I'm like 80 year old or something. So they inspect every car, they check for weapons, and they tell my parents, be very careful because these guys are very dangerous and they're possibly armed and da da da, don't give a ride you know, to anyone and all of those things. Oh, well, I'm very young guy and I'm thinking, what gives the right, or I didn't use the word right, but, you know, what makes people put other people in that big place, that, that prison, you know? 
And the, the, the thinking for me was always like, who decides what's right and wrong? And who, like, how do you end up being there? It's not, I don't know what's right and wrong, but who makes the decision exactly? And do I believe these people that they say that these guys are bad guys? You know, now these thoughts were not formed the same way that I'm explaining them today because I was very young, but I was totally intrigued and I was thinking, wow, they put people behind that. Like, why would they do that? You know, like that's a weird thing to do. Uh, and uh, so I was obsessed with that. Then I went into philosophy and looked at ethics and all that. Oh, that's interesting, but it doesn't answer my question. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to psychology because maybe someone has got an answer. And I applied in psychology, got admitted. Everything was piggity-boo. I was top of the list. Everything was fine. Where were you going to school, sorry? I was going to go in psychology at Ottawa U. Okay. And so life is good. And then two weeks before this, I got a in a car accident, which was not serious, but I, it cost me money, so I did not have money to pay tuition, right? I thought, oh, I'll just wait for a semester, no big deal. And then, to make a story short, then I meet this guy who said, uh, from Ottawa, and at that time I'm in Montreal, and he said, oh, you're coming to Ottawa next week, or, you know, in September or something. I said, well, no, I'll skip a year because I don't have money. And, and I said, well, I thought I didn't have money. Since then, I got the money, but it's too late. I missed the boat. You know, I, I can't go. So he said, Oh, no big deal. You can come to uh, same university, but in criminology. Uh, you made the dean's list in philosophy. You're great. You know, we want you. So I said, oh, sure. But criminology, I've never, I didn't, that's the first time I heard the word. Right? So I said, well, why, why would I go to criminology? He said, it's in the same faculty, psychology at the time. And most of our courses are credited towards a master's in psychology. So you just switched in December or January, and Bob's your uncle. So I thought, oh, that, that works. <laughs> so <laughs> I went to criminology, and then there was no taking me out of that. After that first semester, I had the bug. I, I just wanted to to study that. That was I knew this was my calling. What was the hook? What was the thing that stood out to you that put the nail in the coffin? Uh, it was a practical problem, like how do we deal with that social issue? Yeah. Uh, also, uh, you know, I had good professors and a few that I could uh, that I remember that uh, were convincing and showed me that uh, there was something worth doing there. Like I would, I've never been interested in knowledge for the sake of knowledge. I wanted always to like, okay, once I got that knowledge, what do I do with it? Like. How does that, does that make a difference? Criminology is an applied science, right? So it's always, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? So that attracted me a lot. And the same thing might have been true in psychology, but, you know, once you get into this, you start biting into it. I would have been just probably just as happy in psychology or whatever, but I ended up in criminology and I I just couldn't let go like it. Tell me more, right? That was my my reaction. What about the darkness? What about the dark things you learn about people in terms of, like, we have so many FBI, CIA, CSI type shows, and it seems like that very much speaks to the person who loves criminology. Uh, a lot of my peer group, they enjoyed the, I think it's Dexter, where they're like, the guy also likes carving up people and stuff. But it appeals because... 
you have to have a certain trait in order to kind of stomach learning that um, some serial killers seduce their people before they murder them and butcher them to pieces. Um, you have to have a stomach for the the John Wayne Gacy's, the people who show up at your kid's birthday party as a clown and then slaughter people. And, and there has to be a stomach for that in criminology in a way that you can get through an English degree without ever having to face that or think about the darkness of human beings. What did is there a time you realize that? Is that something that original moment where you saw the the jail where you thought about that? Because that is the interesting thing I find about criminology students is we have a sick, twisted sense of humor of like we're not shocked when you talk about the dark things going on in society or or things going too far in certain regards. That doesn't make us run out of the room. But when other people sometimes hear it, they go, "I can't, I can't hear that. That's too much. I, that makes me uncomfortable. Like I can't." Con- continue any farther yeah for most of our class it was like that's just another tuesday so when did that arise for you yeah i'm not totally sure i that dark side is with me every day all the time so and one example in particular that really gets to me is when i do human trafficking uh, work and uh, talk to victims or deal with victims of human trafficking and I, 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 I'm in disbelief about what people will do to others for greed. Can you describe human trafficking for people who might not yeah. really understand the topic? Well, basically it's, uh, it's convincing people through coercion or deception uh, to uh, do things that uh, to work or do things that they would not normally do. So what? Work in dangerous places, prostitution, work without pay, all of those other things, basically because they are coerced into doing it. So it's it's a form of slavery. Uh, it's oftentimes described like that. It has many, many aspects. But what I see in there is like, I, I find I'm in disbelief about what human beings do to others. Uh that kind of like, and this is not like one day they enrage, you know, builds, beat someone up or shoot someone. This goes on for months, years, all of that, right? And they do that in cold blood. They know exactly what they're doing and not to one person, to a whole bunch of them. So there are many other things, but that's one of them. That's a big dark side for me. The only way I found to deal with that, sometimes I leave the topic. So for a couple of years, when people ask me if I want to deal with this, I'll say, no, thanks, I, I can't do that. I, I, I need space. I need time to reconnect with my faith in, in, uh, in humans. Because I tell you, when I see some of that, it really affects my, my belief in humanity, you know, to see that. And even so, even more so, because oftentimes the people who exploit others in human trafficking are people of the same group, same nationality, family members, all this. Like, how can you do that to someone who is basically a member of your group, someone you, you should care for and be supporting? And there, there you go, exploiting them in these evil ways, right? And then gets worse because some of the human trafficking is with children. So, like, let's not even talk about that. It's, it's awful what people do. But in any event, so the dark side is part of the job. I didn't come into criminology totally naive because I had worked for several years in nightclubs and bars in Montreal. I had seen a few things. Uh, so I, you know, wasn't really a 
I, I had seen a few things, so I, I wasn't totally naive about that. But clearly, uh, I remember to this day my first uh, visit uh, to Philippinel Institute, which was a psychiatric uh, institute for dangerous criminals serving sentences or being assessed, evaluated. And you had everything there, like serial killers, all, like the worst kinds, the, the dark side. And uh, I remember that day, and I remember... Uh, the fear, the being intimidated, the the weird uh, reaction I had because I thought some of them are pretty nice guys, you know, like, you know, he's got a good sense of humor, you know, he looks like an ordinary guy, you know, like, why would I not want to help him, you know, and and in that first visit, they had the, the psychiatrist who had organized it had made sure that we would not know. We met a lot of uh, inmates, but they ensured that we would not know what these guys were guilty of. So we're going there talking to all these guys. We know their first name or whatever. And thinking, oh, well, some of them are, you know, what are they doing here? They're, you know, they're not that crazy and all of that. And then you get out, you go to a meeting room and they say, okay, well, Norman there, <laughs> let me tell you about Norman. And let me tell you about... So there's that dissonance as well. On the one end, I see a person who's just another human being. On the other end, I hear that this person is an awful person because he he did things uh, that are unspeakable, right? And uh, hard to understand or even harder to accept. So you you learn to cope with that. But I don't. I think if it doesn't affect you, if it's not still a matter that troubles you from time to time. Uh, you're not awake. You're not doing your job. You know, you need to be aware of this uh, without necessarily becoming so hardened that you can't be open to uh, dealing with those individuals uh, in a from a human-to-human point of view. Well, you always stay on your guards. You know, these guys' trick is to manipulate and do all those things, so you're not stupid, you're not naive, but that doesn't mean that you can't understand and remember that this is a human being in front of you with his or her own fears and all of that. Right? That is the heavy part of being a native court worker because the people who are always the easiest to deal with, the people who are going ahead, um, getting enrolled in programming, connecting with counseling resources, are often the people accused of harming children. And that's a heavy thing to see the charm that they're willing to bring the persuasive, hey, how's it been? Like, how's your day going? Oh, like, just so you know, I got this done. Here's my certificate. I'm really trying to fix things. And it's like a lot of everything you're doing right now is exactly what brought you to the original charge to begin with. The persuasive, calm, cool, collected, smooth talking person is exactly why you're here today. And so on the one hand, Good. Glad you got counseling. On the other hand, how much can I trust that this has impacted you because this has been a tool that you've used in other circumstances that bring you, like, the the role of the native court workers to help address the underlying factors of the charge that brings them before the court that day. That charm, that persuasive element, is exactly what helped bring them here, yet 
it is what allows them to have a good relationship with their counselor, have a good relationship with me. So there's a certain level of hesitation, skepticism, fear that I don't want that to persuade me. And I do my best to put them into a, you're in your own separate category of people I work with. And drawing those distinct boundaries with those individuals is key to me because, and I think my criminology, criminology degree helped me process that circumstance because walking in there blind or not understanding the complexities of human beings, I don't think I would have been re- ready to deal with those type of people because they are the most likely to hypothetically charm a judge, char- charm their defense counsel, charm everybody in the room while committing terrible crimes. And that's, it's been a, a hard issue to square for me because it's, it's so dark that you see that and you go like, oh, it's so easy to deal with. And then you have to return them to their box of like, yeah, and that's part of the problem. That's part of the danger of that person is that they are so persuasive and charming. Yep. Yeah. I could tell you stories until tomorrow yeah. of this and it's it's a trap. So early in my career, I, I was lucky to be with the season uh criminologists, parole officers, and others who might sit with me and interview and all that and say, you know, afterwards, they say, okay, what do you make of that, right? And then they'd show me how I misunderstood, misinterpreted, got charmed, all of those things, gave me that feedback. Some of it is learning on, you know, as you do it. Hopefully, if you get good supervisors or colleagues who can help you with this, it, it goes better, but... Early in my years, I, I was a probation aftercare for youth at some point in Ontario, in Toronto. And uh, I remember in, in juvenile court, it wasn't called that then, but the equivalent of a juvenile court. Uh, there's two kids back to back appearing before the judge. And uh, one of them, none of them is mine. I'm waiting for the next case. So the first one is uh, a kid whose father is a long distance truck driver. Uh, the kid doesn't know when he's coming back because could be today, could be tomorrow. The kid stole socks at a, a department store called Woolworth because he was hitchhiking to see his mom, uh, and uh, his feet started smelling. So he went, he went to the store. He couldn't hitchhike a ride, and the, the driver told him to get out because he smelled too bad. So he basically went, stole a pair of socks, washed his father, his, his feet in a fountain, and it with the plan of washing his feet in his fountain, but he got caught. So he goes before the judge and he stutters. He is, has no self confidence. It's the first time that he gets to court, has no idea. The judge asked him about his parents as well. I don't know how to reach my mom, no, no phone or anything at the time, cell phone. And I don't know when my dad will come. And the dad, of course, is not present in court. The kid stutters, can't come up with an explanation, doesn't explain why he stole the socks. The judge sends him to then training school two years. The next kid, that's a different system then, right? But the next kid comes, cute blonde hair kid, really smooth, charming, very intelligent. Uh, smile all the time, really smooth, explains to the judge that, you know, it was a mistake and all of that. This kid has seven prior conviction. The cops have presented evidence that he's actually leading a ring of youth who are doing break and enters, and it's seven conviction. The, gu- the judge gave him a warning. 
<laughs> so the charm plays, right? You know, yeah. it's not just charm, but you know, some some kids really don't have things on their side, and you learn really quickly not to uh, be totally taken by those outward signs. You know, like do your do your research, understand what was happening, challenge the individual, find out, you know, check their stories, all of those things. Eventually, uh, you know, you get to a better understanding of whom to trust and not and said as a native court worker, it's not as if I'm a bartender and I trust you to pay me at the end of the evening, right? You know, it's me, maybe I'll lose 50 bucks, you know, because you, you walk out without paying. But as a native court worker, as a probation officer, as an officer of the court, you're making that decision on behalf of us all, right? Yeah. You know, you're recommending decisions to, to the judge, you're doing all those things. So it's not just whether you trust it, it's do you trust that person on behalf of the rest of us? Yeah. You know, you have a professional responsibility other than simply your personal doubts about whether to trust someone or not. So that's that's a heavier thing on, on your shoulder. Uh, and uh, in the end, you know, the judges don't have time to get to know the offenders. You do as a court worker or as a probation officer or whatever. So your opinion matters. It's not that the judge will always agree with you, but it matters what you tell the judge or in your pre-sentence report or in your recommendations. So. Yeah. yeah, it's a huge challenge because you see all the complexities of a human being, uh, some of which are the person who's accused of maybe domestic assault against their wife, horrible circumstance to be in. Th that person needs counseling to work through why do you treat people like this? How does alcohol maybe play a role in the decision-making you have? The, the more complex problem I have personally philosophically that I've asked a few people and I'll ask you is this person is guilty um, of, of their flaws and their mistakes. So is the person who stole the candy bar. But where do we put the white-collar crime? Where do we put the person as Daryl Plekis decide, who gets rich for no good reason, who has no excuse to do so, who takes from taxpayers with no sense of remorse. 2008, there were plenty of people who committed financial crimes, never prosecuted under a criminal law. Corruption is a huge challenge because we don't remember the people who were involved in 2008 specifically. Even if you go specifically to BC or Canada, we can't name those people the way we can name Robert Picton. Um, Robert Picton's crimes, horrible. Uh, over 50 women. Um, I think he says 49, but I think that's disputed. But the point is we can name that person, know what they did, and think that's a bad person. But we can't do the same with 2008. We can't do that with a lot of different issues around financial crimes because it's so broad. To me, it impacts more people. And it frustrates me when I see a homeless, impoverished, indigenous person make the front page of the news for stealing from Save On Foods in comparison to the people who committed those crimes. That's where I feel like I struggle. I can't seem to square the issues because... For some reason, we kind of go, that's politics, that's operating at scale, like these are the problems that are good, that's just business. Like we just kind of put it in a category where we don't have to figure it out. You're a person who's interested in corruption. I'm just interested in your thoughts on trying to square these challenges. It's not just corruption, it's corruption, financial crimes, all kinds of electoral fraud. That's also important, you know, yeah. when you're, you're undermining the democratic 
process, all those things. There's many, many very serious crimes. A crime against the environment, all those things. So we're worried about the impoverished individual who breaks into your car to steal change, or in the old days, a couple of CDs, whatever, and have no problem putting him on probation or in jail for 30 days or 40 days. But the guy who runs away with your pension fund, uh, well, it's a private matter. You know, why don't you sue the guy, right? So clearly, our system is not focusing on the, the greatest threats. That's true throughout the system. It's even true when it comes to organized crime. The only time that you get attention from the police really is when there is public pressure, and public pressure normally comes when there's violence. So currently in BC, another spike of violence and, and fights and, and killings between gangs. The focus of the police is oh, on those guys to do this, but these guys, between killings, what do you think they're doing? <laughs> they're still committing horrendous crimes, trafficking and, and stealing and extortion and, and stealing businesses, all those things. Almost nothing happens to them, right? We only pay attention to the gangs when they start shooting each other, or by coincidence, we we bump into a car that's full of drugs and say, oh, we stopped drugs. But so throughout the system, the focus is on, uh, is oftentimes on the less serious threats. Now, why? I don't know why, but I can tell you some of the reasons. One of them is, of course, politicians and chiefs of police and justice people respond to public pressure. And people get way worried when the gangs start shooting in public places. Right? If they were shooting each other in the middle of the forest, people would say, good riddance, you know, some of them are dead, we don't have to worry about them. So, obviously, the system is uh, focusing on what the population sees as a greater threat or an immediate threat. Violence is one of them, and there's many other things. Also, the system is limited in means. So corruption, financial crimes, all those things are require specialized investigation that take a long time and cost a lot of money. Many of them happen across borders, so that even more money because you have to do your investigation in New York or London or Bangkok or somewhere else. So most of those things don't get a lot of investigation. We're led to believe that, you know, all this is happening. But, you know, when you lift the veil there, there's very little investigation happening, you know, in the, in those areas. Uh, and uh, uh, so the, the whole system is sort of geared towards a certain type of crime and unfortunately neglects some of the most serious crimes. Crime against the environment, you know, polluting a dozen lakes that will take a thousand years to recover. Would that be worse than pickpocketing, do you think? You know, yeah. obviously, but I don't know how to change that. My solution, quote-unquote solution, it's not really a solution, but where I look for that is uh, different governance. Who tells the police what to do? Who governs the judges? Who govern? I don't mean direct or manage. I mean govern. Who sets the priorities? Who holds them accountable? That kind of thing. So I'm interested in things like uh, civilian oversight uh, of policing. I'm interested in uh, in police boards and their roles. Of course, there's many issues with the way police boards currently function, but they could do more because someone's got to tell the cops what we want them to do. 
Can I ask, did you watch the Brenda Lucky thing? Did you observe that yes, at all? I did. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you can you help us think about that issue yeah. better? Because normal people are gonna have their positions. They're not gonna have your expertise. I'm just interested. Can you help us think about that issue in a better way? Well, I'm not sure about a better way, but I can tell you about my own reaction. Uh, I understood her point of view, basically saying, well, it takes time, I'm doing this. But when I read between the lines, my own personal view was, well, it's been a year and a half, and you haven't taken any action. What took you so long? Like, how can you justify not taking action? And her answer was, it's a process, it will take years and all of that. Well, I don't buy that. I, I think there's a whole bunch of things that could be done immediately. First and foremost, she could have made sure that uh, the, uh, and she could still make sure that uh, the resourcing of the positions in that province uh, takes place. You know, so to leave positions empty for months and then to replace them for with temporary people for a few months and all that, that's no way to run a circus, right? And so she's accountable for that. She could say, well, you know, I'm not, I don't do human resources. I got three guys doing that in an army, but in the end, she's accountable. So I was disappointed with her response. Uh, I understand, however, her point about, well, I could have an immediate response, but I'm working on the more fundamental reforms of attitude and culture and all of this. But I think a good leader should do both at the same time. But you know, we're not in her shoes. We don't know what she was dealing with. But uh, I, I felt that the response to that, you know, the talking about Nova Scotia, right, is, uh, was weak and, and disappointing. And I don't think that people in the province were, were convinced for one minute that uh, there was someone there at the helm who understood what they were going through. Can you add a little bit of context? What So, from my understanding, I think it was the Halifax Observer wrote a long kind of scathing indictment of her working with Trudeau to try and have a horrible atrocity in Canada painted around kind of gun control. And that was how the Halifax Observer kind of explained it. I think that article goes into far more detail about the pressure that maybe she felt. Um, and then she's more recently come out and said, we're trying to improve things. We're trying to fix the system. And this was what the, this is what we were doing is trying to fix the system. And so you caught us trying to fix the system. And that's kind of how it felt like it was portrayed from my perspective. Well, no doubt that she and politicians, I mean, the commissioner of the RCMP is a bit of a politician by definition, right? You need to deal with public opinion. Uh, so no doubt that there's a lot of spin in their answers and <coughs> whether or Spinning agrees with the prime minister or not is really irrelevant. In the end, they all know where the wind blows and they all go in that direction. Uh, but when she says, well, I don't read the media. She said that during her testimony before the commission of inquiry. She said, well, I, I don't read the media. I don't follow the media. Why not? You know, the, I don't know she meant that literally because probably people give her media summaries and stuff like this. But basically you're saying, well, I don't know what people are saying about it. That's not my job. Well, no, it is your job, in my view, right? Yeah, it might have to do with gun control, but you can't blame everything on guns. Uh, there were definitely mistakes made on the ground, and everyone by, by now understands them, or most of them, some of them. 
she did not tell us what she was prepared to do or has, had done already, other than a broad, you know, over many years, we'll get there, we'll change attitude, you know, that kind of thing. So I found that was disappointing as a leader. Uh, I was expecting more. Uh, of course, always easy to criticize. I, I, I'm not in her shoes. I don't know what she was actually dealing with. Maybe there's resistance within this whole thing. I know she was also dealing with the emerging union. And, you know, there's so many dimensions of this. Uh, but clearly, you know, go back to your studying days, and I'm sure before that there was all, there's been all kinds of commissions of inquiry and special reports on the RCMP and the problem with leadership and uh, and uh, poor planning, poor strategy, all of those things. And, you know, every two years or three years, there's a new report that tells us what's wrong with the leadership in the RCMP. And three years later, we get another report. I oftentimes get a sense that not a lot has improved. Uh, on the other end, I want to believe that something has improved, that it just takes time. So. The commissioner was saying, oh, things have improved. Well, I hope she's right. I hope she's not spinning it. Uh, but when you look at the number of commissions and special reports that says there are fundamental systemic issues in how the RCMP is being led and managed, then you've got to think, well, there's got to be a better way to, to do this. Uh, you know, after all, we're talking about 35,000 people. It's not a small organization to manage over a big country like Canada. But, you know, that's an excuse. In the end, she's in charge. She's the one who is accountable for all of that. Corruption always has a few pieces. Politicians often involved. I don't want to get lost in specifically Trudeau because I don't think that that's always fair. It is so easy to judge people based on their mistakes or misunderstandings or what we hear in the news. Nobody wants to be judged based on that. Nobody wants uh, at the end of your life to have in your obituary all the things you did wrong. We all want the best of ourselves to kind of be remembered. So I don't want to get lost on Trudeau. But one of the challenges is he's been accused of influencing this issue. He's been accused of influencing Jody Wilson and Raybould and pressuring her. Do you think that that type of... When speaking in corruption, do you think that that's a concern when a leader, not just Trudeau, when a leader is accused of being involved in those issues? Because on to to steal man the other position, a leader should be involved. A leader should be trying to get their hands involved in things to the best of their ability to guide things in the right direction. Uh, if you're overstepping sometimes a policy rule, but you're doing it with the best of intent, that's not always something to forsake someone for. So I'm just interested, how do we... Th best think about his involvement or or people's involvement in issues where they're maybe overstepping and maybe with the best of intent, but in terms of something like corruption? Well, overstepping is a matter of definition. You know, even in the case of uh, um, former Minister Abel, not everyone agreed on whether it was overstepping, not overstepping, when, if it was overstepping, when it happened, all those things. Uh, so, Leaving that aside, who knows exactly? Yeah, leaders have to walk a fine line all the time. When is it they intervene? When is it that they don't? What's the consequence if they do? If they have delegated, you know, so it goes on and on. And there are also hard lines 
set in law are certain things that you cannot do, right? You cannot influence certain processes and so on. So leaving Trudeau aside, you know, I'm sure he's made mistakes. I'm sure that at some point he's going to tell us, well, I wish I didn't do this and that one and this other thing. But, you know, in the end, you want to judge the whole administration. Uh, the corruption slope is, to me, that's not a huge issue. Uh, obviously, uh, there might be uh, mistakes there. There might be uh, overreaching. There might be small a abuse of powers, not necessarily, but, you know, um, abuse of authority to some extent um, or mistaken use of authority. I, I don't really know, don't have all the facts. But, you know, there's far worse problem than this in terms of managing. So are there other signs of corruption? Uh, now, in the case of, uh, of um, I forget the name of the big uh, international uh, construction firm involved in the Rebolt case, but... Uh, SNC-Lavalin. SNC-Lavalin, exactly. Well, we know they had been found, they were being con <laughs> convicted of corruption and all of this. Was there more behind the scene that we don't know? Well, who knows? I don't really know. Uh, I also, and I'm going here on dangerous grounds, but you know, I for many years, for seven years, I was at uh, I was a, a senior guy at uh, Justice Canada, and I'm quite familiar with the way you advise the minister and where central agencies like uh, Prime Minister's office or cabinet, you know, these things work. And in that particular case, I found that uh, one of the things that seemed to be happening is that the minister was not taking a hint uh, from people who were paid to advise her and people who know more about her job than she did. Now, that's my personal judgment, but uh, based on my own experience, when you're when you're a minister of attorney general Canada, minister of justice, you're in a very lonely place, and there's so many thousands of ways you can screw up, right? And the only way that you avoid screwing up is by relying on people around you who know more than you do. Now we've had all kinds of of, of testimonies that in that particular case, the advice was not received. Now I can't pass judgment on that because maybe the minister was right in not accepting the advice. Who knows? Right? We don't know exactly what yeah. the advice was. But seeing from where I was, I was thinking, well, listen, these are people who really knew what they were doing. They knew the law, that partic these particular aspects of the law, far better than the minister possibly could. So... Did people give her the wrong advice? Did she not listen to the advice? What were her decisions? Uh, and at some point, you have to think, well, why did the prime minister or his office start, felt that they had to intervene? Was it for corrupted motives? You know, they were sending political motives, corrupted motives. Maybe they were earning something out of this. Who knows? Uh, or was it because all of a sudden they were not sure that the person responsible for those decisions uh, was taking advice and understood what needed to happen. I don't know the answer is any one of those three, and perhaps there's a fourth and a fifth reason, yeah. but 
I know that it's more complex than that. And, you know, that kind of decision is made every day, many times by a minister of justice. You have no idea about many decisions, even I. When I was there, I, I, I couldn't fathom what they needed to decide on, right? And guess what? They they had to rely on other people. Yeah. Uh, at some point, not a minister, but a deputy minister of justice, a former deputy that I won't name, uh, was in a public event and... Uh, he was, uh, people ask him, like, wow, you know, as a deputy minister of justice, you served for many years and you got out of there scot-free. No one has ever accused you of making a wrong decision or corruption or anything. Like, what was your secret? Like, how come you, you avoided all that crap that other deputies and ministers get involved in? And he, no hesitation, turned around, named a few people in the audience who were there who had worked with him before and said, because of these people. They gave me the right advice. I trusted them, and they had my back. They made sure I made good decisions all the time. Now, of course, in politics, well, who do you trust? What advice do you take? You know, I'm not blaming uh, the former minister. I'm not blaming anyone. I was saying it's a little more complex than that. Yeah. And in the end, did we really get a good understanding of what it was? Not really. Uh, and uh, also this new disposition of the code allowing some kind of uh, agreement between the prosecution and uh, and the accused, in this case, it was a brand new disposition of the law, right? So no one exactly knew how it would work, uh, including the minister, because no one knew, not no one was a brand new disposition. Like you could say, well, in England and in this other country, this is how it works, but how is it supposed to work here? And who makes the decision? And so it was also new grounds. And maybe uh, that's part of the answer. Like everyone was on new grounds with a big, huge, mega (laughs) shit bowl of a case, right? You know, that was not an easy thing, the SNC-Lavalin, right? How did Daryl's interaction with cor- corruption, you watching as someone who knows him, watching some of the pre- preparatory interviews that he had done to prepare for my interview with him, it was astonishing how much of Daryl as a human being was missing from the interviews. For me personally, I would watch a four-minute clip of them outside of the speaker's room, and they're like, how could you make this decision? And to me... Context is everything. And knowing that Daryl has a background trying to understand corruption, trying to address in other countries, it's like you're going to accuse him of misunderstanding this. It seemed short-sighted. It was why I'm so grateful to have this platform to hear him long form. I didn't dive into the BC liberals and any of that to begin with. I wanted to show this is a human being. This is someone who cares about his students, who cares about his community, who cares about self-improvement and and developing yourself in a positive way. Then let's talk about what happened and, and where shit hit the fan. It seemed like First of all, like context was lacking from a lot of those interviews. But as a bystander who knew him, who knows where his heart is, uh, for better or worse, what was it like watching that? And what did you think of of some of the things he was trying to uncover? Because I've heard even people who've listened to it been like, it was never that big of a deal. And I've heard obviously from him saying, this is terrible. And every dollar misspent 
is is a tragedy for for people to have confidence in the government and we need comfort confidence in government interviewing people i don't know if you've heard of joel backen he's he made the film the new the corporation and the new corporation he's a professor at allard sat down with him he talked about the world economic forum genuinely believes democracy isn't the move corporations can fix a lot of our problems for us and we should just get out of their way and let them fix some of the problems. And then we see the challenges with our democracy when corruption allegations arise and then people who are in the World Economic Forum would go, this is just proof of what we're saying. How did you think about what happened with Daryl, knowing him as a person? How did you kind of watch all of that play out? Well, I tried to support him, but... (laughs) Uh, and I'm not going to reveal what he shared with sure. me in terms of his emotions, and and but you can imagine he was concerned, right? You know, this was not a small deal for him, and you saw the kind of vicious attack he was subjected to, so that was awful. But did that surprise me? No, because look, the person who came out with uh, the scandal with Enron and all financial crime there, she's still looking for a job. No one is going to hire her again, right? So a lot is at stake. People who actually reveal cases of corruption, bribery, all of those things, uh, election tampering, they do that at great cost. They are typically not protected. The media even, you know, typically don't give them the benefit of the doubt. So you get all this world against you. Mm-hmm. Very few people in your corner. So guess why? Most people don't report. Do you think that this thing that Daryl reported, uh, and I'm not divulging anything Daryl told me, but do you and I think that this started with the day Daryl arrived? No. Oh, do you think it's the only thing that was happening in the legislature? Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. And on and on. So it took someone with courage, or some people might say naivety, uh, to say, no, I don't, this, I'm not part of that. I don't do this. And I think the facts are that they tried to bring him in into this fold of why don't you accept a little perks here and there. That way, you know, they're trying to compromise him. They didn't succeed, but apparently there were attempts to do that. So guess what? You know, this is a guy who has enough integrity uh, to to say, no, I'm not going to be part of that, and I'm going to denounce it. Like, you can say whatever you want about Daryl, and he may not have been the greatest politician, I don't know, but integrity is important to him, right? Uh, He wasn't going to sell his soul for, you know, a few thousand bucks or for a little promotion or whatever. I don't think he's ever considered that in his whole career, and he wasn't about to do it in politics. Now, there's a big complex story there, but in the end, what's the lesson I draw? It's basically, unless you have people of integrity who are willing to stand up and say, no, this, this doesn't work. This is not, this is not good enough. Nothing will happen. But the second thing is you need to protect those people. Do we have a, uh, uh, whistleblower protection system in Canada that really supports these people? No. Uh, do we have, uh, concrete ways to help these people defend themselves? themselves in court at some point you start denouncing people next thing you know you're in court with people who've got 16 lawyers and you're alone with your you know your friend who gives you a little bit of pro bono time kind of thing right so who wants to face those odds right so most people you know just shut up and uh we're lucky that 
We have a friend who did not, and British Columbians should be lucky, but do you think he's getting the recognition? No. That's what's blown my mind the most, is to someone, to looking at him when I was trying to have him on, admiring him for the first time I saw him come into a classroom and just explain to us why we should all be drug dealers. Like that was such a such a Daryl move to come in and be like, well, because uh, we were. He was like, "Do you believe drugs are bad?" And then everybody was like, "Of course, we believe drugs are bad." And then he goes, "Why? What if you have a, a mother in the hospital and she needs help? Why? Why not just sell some drugs and make sure she gets the resources she needs?" And then just having so that was my first interaction with him too, seeing what he went through, the challenges of standing up to voices throughout a system that had been so good at stamping people out, to see what he went through, and then to see the unceremonious leaving, it was probably the hardest for me to see was you didn't get the red carpet rolled out for you. You didn't get the love of the, the the people saying, like, thank goodness you went and fought and stood up to things and, and raised light. Like, sitting there and being like, you made a difference. You stood up for what you believed in. Whether other people agree with you or not doesn't matter. You did what you thought was best. And there's no parade. There's no reception from the people. It's completely, now you're back in regular life, no warm kind of sense, no kumbaya moment to do that. It just, just, it's a, it's a wild thing to do. And it, it, it evokes awe for me that somebody's willing to do that, that kind of, okay, you're, you're in a different league because you were willing to do something like that. That's a crazy thing to do because there was no upside. There was no benefit to doing what you did personally in terms of like, I opened all these doors. It's like, very few doors opened for you that were beneficial. And so, yeah, I have a lot of admiration for, for what he was willing to do just for the betterment of our society. And it's, mm-hmm. it sucks that there isn't more opportunities to kind of build those people up and, and build a build a, a statue or something. Yeah, well, I don't think Daryl ever wanted the statue, and he didn't do it to get recognition. No. Uh, and he's a tough guy, so he'll survive. Don't worry about him. He's, he's good. Uh to me, the, the greater concern is uh, the public side. You know, for instance, the media went after, some people in the media went after him viciously with lies and all kinds of things, threatening, you know, questioning his mental health and all of this. And when the facts were established and the person was convicted and all that, do you think that these media came in with a retraction and said, well, sorry, uh, we got that wrong, right? Basically, whatever damage they did is, oh, water under the bridge, here's a tree-line call a tree column line thing uh, on uh, the, the outcome and move on. This is yesterday's news. The, the real damage is on people out there who feel that uh, they know things and uh, they are still trying to think whether they have the courage to do it, they to denounce it. Also, not just the courage, but the impact on their family, right? I don't know what the impact on Daryl's family was, but I'm sure they weren't going to a picnic. You know, seeing this and seeing how Daryl was treated and all of this has to be hard on the family. But Daryl financially survived. You know, you got paid, he does his thing, and everything is fine. But there's a lot of people who, when they do something like this, they put their whole family, their kids' college fund, everything in, in peril just it's not just courage. It's also thinking of your responsibility towards the people who depend on you. Yeah. So it's not personal courage. It's like, 
oh my goodness, if I do this, what will be the impact on my children? Uh, do they have to go to a different school? Do they have, uh, uh, do I have, will I have money to send them to college? Uh, you know, on and on and on, right? Uh, because in, in cases like this, I forget Daryl and the legislature for now, but in cases like that, very often the, the consequences are direct also on relatives. Right, you can't get a job. You you're, you're harassed in school, like all of those other things. You're you're you know you're isolated. You're 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 harassed by people who believe that uh, you should have kept your mouth shut. And oftentimes, that's a lot of people. Like if you go, if people denounce a company that is secretly polluting a river, and there's a you know 500 job depending on it. Well, if you release the data on the river pollution and, and, and whistle blow on that, guess what? You've made yourself 500 enemies of people who will suffer and their family because the factory is being closed. And that's a real consideration. People who whistle blow like this, they know that, you know, they're not stupid. They know there'll be consequences for them and people around. So the odds are very against, very much against people do know coming out and saying it. And that's why we know so little about a lot of those things, crime against the environment, financial crime, money laundering, all those things. Um, you know, secretaries in a law firm, like name it. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of people who have access to compromising information who keep their mouth shut, uh, sometimes without benefit. That's another thing. You know, it's like, oh, people say, well, you're complicit, you didn't say anything. Well, not necessarily, you know. Oftentimes you don't say anything because first you don't think you're going to be believed. Second, the consequences are terrible. Third, there's going to be an army of people fighting you yeah. and you're alone, right? Yeah. One of the interesting areas is like that I've developed on is trying to understand the role of journalism deeper, not just you read an article in the newspaper and that's news. It's trying to understand the function of journalism because it seems like that's an area we need to make sure we take care of. And I've interviewed individuals from uh, a new organization called Overstory Media. They run the Fraser Valley Current here. They're focused on writing long newsletters. They go in detail. They highlight other, like Abbotsford News and stuff, but their goal is to write longer, more detailed pieces that actually break something down in a meaningful way rather than, oh, just so you know, this is happening. It's like they want to develop more. And I think... I'm just interested in your thoughts on the dangers of journalism because you got to see firsthand journalism fail. Like often people go, why didn't you just go to the media? Why didn't you just tell someone? And then for Daryl's circumstance, he goes through very clearly that none of those doors were open. All of those people knew that there would be consequences on them if they spoke up. Their their nice offices would be impacted. And so they made small decisions that had a big impact on him because for them it's like do we write the story or do we not write the story and it seems so easy we'll just avoid the story or we'll just write it in this way and then it has a cascading consequence for society and i think journalism is one of those areas like we care about our doctors we care about our police officers we care about how our politicians are acting we seem to put less focus on our journalists and the role they play in keeping us informed, holding our politicians accountable, all of these kind of duties that they have that are so implicit that we haven't really talked about them. 
what was it like seeing those attacks, knowing Daryl as a person? Were, did that surprise you about the, the journalism industry in BC? Or was this something you suspected? I'm just, for me, it was like an eye-opening, oh, this is in BC. Like, this is a problem in BC. You hear about it on Fox News or CNN. You don't think of it as so personally as the local news organizations you've recognized. So what was that like? Well, sorry to generalize. I mean, we have some courageous journalists in BC, Canada. Uh, if you're thinking organized crime, think Kim Bolin. You know, she, her life was threatened and all that. Right? You know, she's... Sorry, could you say a little bit more on that for people who might not know? Okay, well, Kim Bolin is a journalist. She's worked for different media, different newspaper. But for the last, I don't know, 15 years, maybe more, 20 years, I don't know exactly how long, she's been reporting on organized crime groups and, and criticizing the response of government and reporting on on all things related to gangs and, and organized crime, uh, oftentimes at great risk to herself. And at some point she was herself threatened and she needed special protection and all of this. So there's some very courageous journalists and she's not given up. Like Not everyone likes her and everyone thinks she's uh, always, per no one thinks she's perfect, but you know, no one's going to say she doesn't, she's not courageous. And, uh, and she's talking about things that are, really problematic, you know, gangs and organized crime and potential corruption linked to that and insufficient response by by uh, law enforcement and justice. So there's some courageous journalists. Uh, they also need a platform. So that's one big caveat. You know, do they work in a place where they will be allowed to be great journalists, right? The other thing is there's fewer and fewer journalists with the written media in particular, so they they have like 20 minutes to do a story and then move on to the next. And I've spent a lot of time in the last 15, 20 years working with journalists, uh, trying to be their backup. I don't have a position. I'm just selling them a position, but I'll help them understand what's happening. Sometimes on the air, sometimes in background, you know, making, making sure that many of them don't have the resources to do background research. Now, for a lot of those issues, I don't need to do background research. I've done it already, right? So basically, I can send that to them or I can give them 20 minutes or half an hour, brief them and all that. Or I can do an interview, which I do a lot. But the, uh, but that's one of the issues. They don't have the backup to do more in-depth kind of analysis. The other thing is, at this point, everyone's a journalist with the social media. So, you know, how do you come, if you are in, Posing upon themselves all those journalistic criteria of, you know, checking your sources and not saying more than what you actually know and all those things, which is professional journalism. And you're competing with, with some person who basically has a blog or God knows what and pumps out whatever version of the facts that they think is relevant. Uh, it makes it difficult for journalists to come up with good material that is read, that is believed, and all of those things. So there's a whole thing that I'm sure you're aware of, but, you know, we used to trust journalists to be the mediator between us and what was happening out there, but right now there's less trust in journalists, for one thing. Maybe the journalist is not as good. I don't really know that for a fact, but that's possible. And then, of course, they are competing with all kinds of improvised journalists, right, who basically can post uh, information on on social media, web, whatever, 
at the speed of light without any research, without anyone imposing any standard on what they do. And so it's a very, very different environment for them to work in. And, uh, but there's some really interesting journalists that are coming up the next generation. Uh, and I'm, I don't know enough about it, but I, I'm encouraged by that. They don't, they're not necessarily CBC or global or whatever. They're, they're into more, um, uh, mixed media. Uh, they found they're finding a space in between the social media and the official media and all this and uh, and trying to impose upon themselves some very high standards of journalism so you see them from time to time coming out uh, very few of them spend much time on crime uh, because crime for journalists is like you know chasing dogs and that kind of thing it's not a big big issue yeah. uh, and uh, therefore, few of them deal with crime or organized crime or all of those you know other issues yeah. uh, one of the organizations i belong to or work with is the global initiative on organized crime and uh, based in geneva and one of the things they do is they train journalists on how to analyze understand research organized crime illicit market issues because <laughs> otherwise they rely on police press releases and you know, what's immediately available. And of course, these are people's, you know, spinning the system the way they wish. So there's a role, there's an importance for that. And here's another little uh, pet peeve of mine. Uh, A lot, because of the fear that I mentioned earlier and the self-censorship and all of that, uh, a lot of uh, academics have moved away from interacting with the media. And I, I've always believed that that goes with the responsibility of being a university professor. You have a responsibility to participate in those debates, not just to take side, but you know to help people understand the debates and yeah. the issues and the options and all of that. And uh, a lot of my colleagues, uh, young and old, uh, have withdrawn completely from this because, well, it's messy and the media don't really report exactly what you said. And, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, if they report something wrong, then you're being canceled or they take three words out of what you've said and you look like an idiot. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people have withdrawn from that. And uh, I think it's a great pity because if people who have the training, the education, the the research to support those discussions, social discussions and debates, don't participate, well, you're leaving it open to people who are going to make it up, right, and people who push their own little agenda. So uh, I don't know if it's fair of me to generalize, but from my perspective, when I looked at my colleagues, I find that fewer of them uh, are... um, willing to engage with the media they feel that the rewards are small and the risk are high yeah so they they move out they leave that to others i know because even at at our university at fraser valley uh people in media relation have organized forum discussions with faculty members sometimes i participated uh, to try to encourage people and say well if you need training we'll help you and if you know you know, we'll do all those things to support you if you do it. But they have very few takers. You know, people say, oh, no, not in my contract. I don't I don't have to do this and it's too risky and, yeah. you know. 
I don't blame them. I When I was preparing to start this podcast, one of the first few people I had on was Zena Lee, John Haidt, and one of my feelings while preparing and trying to read articles they were involved in was like, you get a sentence. You're there, maybe you do a 30-minute interview, maybe a 45-minute interview, you get one sentence of like, raw, this person exactly said this one thing. And from my perspective, it was like, why not just sit down with you? Uh, like an individual like yourself, like we have barely scratched the surface of all the things you know. Like we're just about to start talking about the United Nations and it's like, that is a huge piece of things you know a lot about, but we're already two hours and 45 minutes in. Like we're, there's a lot of information to cover of things you know. And so giving you one sentence to me seems like criminal like we need to create the space where you can talk and you won't be edited i won't be looking for a sound bite of the worst thing you said in the interview or something like that like people that do that they're missing kind of the beauty of the person and you're so focused on getting that one bite for this article that you miss out on the brilliance of the individual in front of you and that was part of why i enjoy long form interviews where we're not trying to cut this down to give me 10 minutes of information on on this topic it's like let's just talk let's just see what your thoughts are on things so speaking of the United Nations, this may seem silly to you because you know their inner workings. I have friends, I have people that I care about who think that United Nations is a cabal of individuals who are working to the words globalization and the destruction of our planet. I genuinely have people who think the worst of the United Nations for whatever their reasons. I'm just interested, can you tell us from your perspective working with them, what is it meant to you to work with the United Nations? What good work do they do? Uh, what are your overall perspectives of, of partnering with them to try and address crime prevention in, in the world? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> the, well, first, people need to understand that the United Nations is a club of nations, so it's a political process. Right? It's whatever states agree to do together. It's not some other organization on the moon. And of course, therefore, whatever the UN does has got to be supported by member states financially, politically, all of that, and try to get 200 people, 200 countries to agree on anything, right? First thing. Second, of course, I'll give you a cliche, but if, if the United Nations did not exist, you'd have to invent it. Why? Because there needs to be a place where people talk to each other even if they hate each other. Remember, you made the point earlier, that's one of the things students have to learn, right? You know, we may not be in agreement, we may not be, be friends, but we can listen to each other and try to understand each other's point of view. So that's a, a very important function. Uh, the other thing is, uh, there's no big ill intent because the UN is so disorganized, there's no way they could possibly get themselves, you know, the, the old images when I was working on firearms control, uh, the NRA had all those uh, several years ago for the UN. Uh, the, the NRA had those pictures of the black helicopters coming in the US to take over and seize firearms and all that. Well, the, well, first they don't have helicopters, and if they did, they wouldn't know how to fly them. You know that is not the UN is not that effective. You know it's a big, big, big bureaucracy uh, that does not function that efficiently, uh, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. Uh, it also is a forum where countries can explore with each other things that they can do with each other. So not everything needs to happen at the multilateral UN everything, but at the UN, it's possible for countries to find uh, areas where they want to work bilaterally or regionally or in different formations. So there's a whole ocean of things happening behind the UN that you may not know. 
I should also tell you, mostly for listeners, that uh, my experience of the UN is basically in three areas. So the UN is way bigger than that. But the three areas are human rights, crime prevention, and criminal justice, which includes drug control. And the third one, which is post-conflict institution building, justice institution building. So it's all around justice and crime. So that's a narrow focus. Justice and crime in the UN is a tiny little slice of the whole organization. Now, having said this, uh, I think it does good work. Uh, if I did not, I would not waste my time doing it. Uh, I find it frustrating. Everyone who works there finds it frustrating. It's a big, huge elephant. Uh, it doesn't turn fast. It doesn't do anything fast. It spends a lot of time to do small things. Uh, and a lot of money to do small things. So it's very frustrating. But if you ask yourself, okay, if we didn't do that, what else would happen? The answer is probably nothing. So it's always the same thing for me. One of the yardstick I use is, uh, do you want to uh, light a candle or curse darkness, right? So well, UN is a little candle. Uh, and the Secretary General, the current one said recently, we need more multilateralism, he means UN, rather than less, in spite of what people say. But what we're seeing, and uh, I've published on that, but uh, basically is a, is a real weakening of the whole rule-based order, social order, with the UN, uh, contempt for the rule of law internationally, a breaking down of international institution, or or at least a not a breaking down, a fragmentation. And uh, to me, that's a big source of concern in our other areas. Health, environment, all those things about which I know little because I, I'm not, this is not my expertise. I read newspaper like everyone else and I know we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> Someone needs to do something, but it can't be me because I don't know much about it. But in my field of interest, organized crime, corruption, uh, counterterrorism. Uh, we were making some progress and in the last four or five years, we're going down at speed of light. The UN is becoming less effective. Countries are withdrawing their support. International cooperation at all levels is getting uh, weaker all the time. Uh, and uh, we, uh, one of your colleagues, I think you know her, Jessica Jan, uh, and I wrote a couple of uh, a report and then a, a book chapter on uh, uh, basically the, the demise of international cooperation in criminal matters. And it's getting a lot of good reception. Why? Because people who also have eyes, you know, it's not as if I'm so bright I figured that out, right? No, we just took the time to write it down and try to develop what might be ways out of that, you know, right. what are potential scenarios to fix that. Uh, but basically, I've presented that, published it, so did uh, Jessica. Everyone agrees, you know, it's we're in trouble. This is falling apart around criminal justice, uh, around um, fighting organized crime, illicit markets, crime against the environment, cybercrime. UN has been unable to this point to come up with a with proper tools to fight cybercrime. We don't have any. We've been discussing for 10, 15 years that we need a new convention, a new instrument, new mechanism. We're just starting to have a discussion about whether or not we're going to have a discussion, right? So we're not there yet. 
Well, so that sounds very negative, but what's your alternative if you don't like that? Well, at some point, don't blame the UN. If discussions have not taken place for on cybercrime and the best way to deal with that at the multilateral level, it's not because of the UN. It's because of the member states, right, who do not want to reopen that, who do not want to make concessions, who have different worldviews on how to control cybercrime and control cyberspace in general, right, and control how people use the internet and all those things. So, uh, the world is divided into big, two big polarized camps with uh, Russia, Brazil, China, and, and a few other, India and on one side, basically saying, well, let's control people, you know, use the internet and, and the rest of the world saying, not the rest of the world, but the Western world, including Canada, US, uh, New Zealand, Europe, most of Europe saying, no, we, we got people who got rights. <laughs> Remember human rights? You know, that applies also to cyberspace and how we control cyberspace. So as a result of that, we've wasted 15 years. Uh, now, what's the alternative? Well, I call it wasted 15 years. People are saying, well, those 15 years were important to try to get to a point where countries one day maybe will accept to work together. There are other things. I don't want to say that UN multilateralism is the only thing because there's also the Budapest Convention by in Europe, which other countries like Canada can join, and we have. And so there's other ways to tackle it. But, you know, everyone agrees that we need a global instrument to tackle organ, uh, 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 cybercrime. And countries have not even agreed to go to the table until very, very recently. And when I, I have a t chance to attend some of those discussions and participate sometimes, and I tell you, like, it's it's a circus. You know, it, it, you have a hard time believing that these are adults sitting around the table sometimes, but, you know, it's so politicized and polarized that, you know, you don't get the sense that they're making progress. Now, the optimist in me wants to say, well, I'm sure we're making progress. It's just it takes longer. But uh, at some point, we need to deal with cybercrime. Yeah. You know, there's no way around that. You know, the real, we goes back to the issue of corruption and financial crime and all this. Where do you think this happens? It happens in cyberspace most of the time. Where is the money in cyberspace, uh, in cryptocurrency, all of those other things? Like, this is not yesterday's problem. It's it's not even tomorrow's problem. It's today's problem. And yeah. the UN is letting us down. Uh, you saw people think that the UN was not less than perfect in helping us deal with COVID and around international cooperation at the World Health Organization and so on. So there's a, definitely a need for a new UN. And uh, there's a new panel. The Secretary General have created a, a new panel of experts to try to advise him within a year on um, the future of UN international cooperation, you know, where to go next, sort of a big, big picture, uh, international, uh, sorry, uh, transnational cooperation on everything concerning with the UN. And countries have agreed that it's necessary. So clearly it's not just me saying we got a problem. No, we got a problem. Houston, we're in deep trouble. You know, this is not... Uh, happening the way it should be. But, uh, you know, when some of the main members of the UN sitting on the Security Council are 
basically at war with each other in Ukraine. Yeah. Well, don't expect them to be all friendly the next day in a negotiation of a new convention. Yeah, so you're saying there's a potential, for people who don't know, there was once a League of Nations that failed. And so the United Nations followed after that there could be a 3.0 sort of imagination of where things could be. How do we do this differently? The internet is a fascinating thing because as much as we've all kind of gotten used to it, our laws, our policies, our relationships with other countries have not kept up. Um, what relationship are we supposed to have? Even if you think of an individual, are you supposed to be friends with your colleagues on Facebook? Is that the community for that? Some people say no. Some people say this is only for family, close friends. Other people say, yeah, why not? Everybody can be my friend on Facebook. There's different approaches. And so on a personal level, we're reconsidering it. But the challenges of cybercrime, of um, elderly people agreeing to send over money to help a family member and losing everything over that decision, catfishing. We've seen new problems arise that have drastic impacts on individuals, but are challenging to conceptualize, to personalize to us, because when you hear of the grandmother sending that money, you go, well, what was she thinking? What a silly person. Uh, but even personally, my mother um, was once just right in front of me, and she got a call, and she answered it, and the person was pretending to be me. And while looking at me, she started getting emotional because the person was pretending that the that I was in danger and in harm's way. And she's like, she started crying, thinking that it was me, even though she could see me. And so the problem isn't as just as simple as, oh, these are stupid people and these are smart people. It's like the emotional pull that individuals can do on you, whether it's online, whether it's over the phone, can be so devastating. The fear, um, to try and maybe use Daryl Plekis' circumstances, the BC legislature is a small fish. As you grow in size to the federal government and then to the United Nations, that, that corruption... It grows. It doesn't get less as you get bigger. Is that a concern at all oh, from yeah. your your perspective? Well, the I know it was painful and and probably a symptom of much wider corruption. But what Daryl got it caught in is a tiny, tiny little bit of corruption. Corruption. It, it, when we were talking about SNC leveling earlier, we're talking about hundreds of millions and all this in different countries. Like this is getting big, right? Uh, the uh, another example of this was uh, uh, you probably know Dr. Marta Dow, also a faculty member at uh, UAV. Yes, she was a past guest as well. Yes, yes, I think I remember that. Uh, she, her, and I did um, uh, a study for the UN on corruption in. Uh, major sports event. So the Olympics, the World Cup, all of those other things. And guess what? Now this is the the picnic, right? So hundreds of millions, billions sometimes are spent on getting ready for the Olympics, building an arena, buying land, all those things, Commonwealth Games, naming all of those things. This is a major, major feeding ground for corrupt people. Everyone has got their hands in there to, to try to get money. So and it happens on, on immense scales, like the Russian Games, you know, Olympic Games, Winter Games were awful. Uh, the India Commonwealth Games were like beyond imagination, uh, the level of corruption that there was there. Uh, the Beijing Games had huge corruption, but they did it. It was, uh, they were hiding it at an early stage of the process so that it looked totally clean afterwards, but 
the corruption that taken place early in the process so that no one could find it. So there's a lot of, of that corruption. That's just Olympic Games or just like major events. Think of all the major construction uh, projects uh, everywhere in the world, bridges, dams, all those things. Money disappears. I was uh, uh, working on an anti-corruption and anti-financing of terrorism policy for the African Development Bank in Tunisia. And uh, their board of governors thought that on a good day, only 40% of the money that they give to countries makes it. 60% disappears. Now, that was the board. So if the board thinks, you know, we lose 60%, well, I'm prepared to think it's a little more than that, right? Uh, guess what? There's no audit, no physical audit. So someone sends you a bunch of receipts showing that concrete was poured to build a dam. You don't ask for a picture of the dam or you don't send one of your officers to see whether there's an electric dam there, no. Basically, oh, got the receipts, check, check, check. It adds up to 60 million. You're good to go. Go. No physical audit. No one going to the country and saying, "Where is the dam exactly?" <laughs> you know, there's no dam here, right? Uh, same thing with bridges, all kinds of things. So hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars were going out, and the board knew that that was the case, but felt that really they couldn't do much to change that because the corruption happened in countries. What they could control didn't do well, but could control is what how the bank managed its funds. What they could not control so well is the politics in each country, where the money was going, uh, who was in, in the take, you know, all of those other things. And a lot of times, while well, that involved presidents of countries and, you know, not small fish, right? So that they, the size of that is, uh, is, uh, hallucinating. But, uh, on the other hand, uh, the systems in place to prevent that are pretty weak everywhere in the world. Uh, we There's a new, well, not so new, but 2003 Convention Against Corruption that the UN has adopted, and I've worked helping in some countries implement it. But basically, it's a corruption that is geared towards helping country who mean to do something to cooperate. But it doesn't do anything for countries that don't want to address the issue, right? So, you know, you called and they won't answer. That's as simple as that. Yeah. Do you have a country that stands out to you that you've worked with over the years where they're being innovative, they're being open-minded, they're trying to fix the problems, just a country that stood out to you that you admire based on their willingness to want to do more? Yeah, I have several, but... The one that stands out for most analysts of corruption is Singapore. And I'll admit to a bit of a bias because my wife is originally from, she's Canadian, but originally from Singapore. But Singapore went from basically a third world country to one of the top first world country in less than 40 years, right? And one of the first thing they address is corruption. Uh, and, uh, and they were, they, they meant business, right? They actually, put in place the mechanism to prevent corruption. They also paid their civil servants extremely well. So they brought down the, 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 the demand for extra money or all of that and took all kinds of measures, training, can't go into detail. So that's one country that made a difference. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, but if you want an example of what works, 
go and see there. Uh, the same thing with corruptions within prison, same thing with corruptions within law enforcement. They took drastic measures. Uh, and it's not just control and putting people in jail. Like it's all kinds of things, changing of attitude, training, uh, right, the right process in place, the right uh, checks and balances, you know, a whole range of issues. Uh, and they've done that, and in part because it's a small country, easy enough to do. They had great leadership in Lee Kuan Yew many years ago, uh, who had identified that as one of the main challenges. Right? So, uh, basically, it goes to corruption is part of governance, and uh, having good governance uh, is really a precondition for development. And that is true at whatever level you want to look at it. Good governance is important for university. It's important for indigenous community. The, you, you won't have real development or whatever unless you've got good governance. And then good governance means integrity, yeah. measures to prevent corruption, misconduct, all of those things. Yeah. And it works all the way to countries, right? So, and I think we're pretty, we're amazingly lucky in Canada if you look at you know, the kind of corruption we have to deal with, and I'll, I'll grant you that there's probably more, much more than we know, but as compared to some of the countries I go in and worked in, uh, it's nothing. You know, we're, we're doing, uh, we're lucky we're doing better than others. Now, that's not to say stop and there's not no problem. There are many issues with corruption here, and one of them is we don't even know how much corruption there is because there's almost no investigation of corruption in Canada. We don't have an independent authority to investigate corruption in public service. Uh, officially, it's the RCMP. And if you look at what they have in place to investigate corruption, it's tiny. Right? Uh, so, whereas other countries sometimes have, not sometimes, oftentimes have uh, specialized institution with specialized prosecutors and law enforcement and investigators and all of that, we don't have that currently. Uh, there's a proposal to have a, uh, more than a proposal, it's in the letter of appointment of the Minister of Justice and the Minister of Public Safety federally to create a brand new agency on financial crime. So financial crime agency, which may to some extent also uh, include corruption to the extent that there's a financial part to it. Yeah. Uh, and no one really knows because it's just a plan at this point. It's not, we don't have a, actual concrete uh, description of what that agency would do. But in any event, uh, having said all of this, uh, our problems of corruption are nothing as compared to what you see in other countries. And the big, big thing that corruption, that people don't understand is that corruption will defeat, vitiate everything else you try to do. You try to develop, you try to train, you try to invest, you try to do all of that turns to nothing because of corruption. And there are many countries that are at that level. Like, no matter what they try to do, how much resources they throw at problems, the problems don't get addressed because the resources get siphoned off all the time by corrupted elite. It's not the people at the bottom of yeah. the scale who, who, they may take little bribes. People put, talk about India and Kenya and places where you, you can't do anything without a cop asking you for rupees or shillings or whatever and that's all true but the real problem is not the cop who's asking you for a few rupees although that's annoying as hell you know uh, and 
it's symptomatic of other issues, but you know, there's corruption on scales that uh, um, really paralyze a country, defeats basically everything else that people try to do to improve their situation, to improve their systems, their institutions, all of that. Corruption, I'm going to steal it and move in a little bit of a different direction, but corruption is something that happens within the person. Uh, it's decisions you make, small or big, that impact your integrity. One of the areas we've sort of talked about is the hesitation to want to speak up, whether it's to media, whether it's to students uh, in universities right now. I know you're not a professor practicing right now, but what advice would you provide for professors in this circumstance right now? What, uh, based on your experiences, it seems like one of one of your thoughts would be make sure you speak up and stand up for whatever you believe in, whether everybody agrees with you or not. That is, you have to, ha- you can't corrupt yourself. You can't let yourself fold and fold, and that's kind of the 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 spiel with tenure is that s- some professors they fold, they fold. All I want to do is get tenure, then I'll stand up for myself. Um, I had Scott Sheffield on, and he felt like he was pressured into choosing a different lens to view the world through because military history isn't that popular in universities. So he was like, "Oh, I was told to like kind of put on a cloak of invisibility, and then by the time I get tenure, go, oh, oh now I'm interested in military history and kind of." And he said, I don't want to corrupt myself. I'm going to find a way to to do what I love, and I'm not going to let that take away from myself. What advice do you have for professors? Okay, well, you gave the advice already, so ditto, I agree. I would add one more thing, which is choose your battles. You'll just exhaust yourself if you're taking every battle, fighting every windmill that comes your way. You'll turn into some kind of Don Quixote, but the world won't change. Uh, so choose your battles, I would add to that. But I, I will share with you and your listeners a little story uh, before we come. We bring this to an end because we don't have all night. But the uh, it's a story I tell my students, uh, particularly when we're talking about system, changing the justice system and all of that. And uh, it's uh, I borrowed that from someone else. Uh, it's called the Clark Kent Syndrome. And the idea that, uh, you know, at this point it's not safe, so I'm, I'm keeping my Clark Kent suit, and I'm not going to let the world know that I'm Superman, right? So right now I'm playing it safe. I'm waiting until I have tenure. I'm waiting until there's a right time. I'm waiting until there's a new minister. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, justifying all the time that you're not doing anything. And one day you say, okay, now I've got my chance Boom, Clark Kent suit. They go to your phone booth to take their Clark Kent suit out. Guess what? There's no Superman behind. You know why? Because Superman grew in all the, would have grown in all those years where you took battles one after the other and learned how to do it and how to fail and how to succeed. You can't postpone that for 20 years, 25 years and say, Oh, one day I'll have my moment and I'll, I'll be Superman. And I'll change the world. It doesn't happen this way. But a lot of people use exactly that excuse to justify to themselves their own inaction, their own lack of courage. Now, remember I said, chose your battles. You can't go after every windmill and you can't fight everything all the time with everyone. Yeah, you have to be strategic in terms of what you do. You have to know what your limits are and you have to know what things you're willing to tolerate and not tolerate. So know yourself is the beginning, right? Good teacher, right? Know yourself. That's where it starts. Uh, But the other thing is um, uh, don't postpone. I mean, the idea that uh, one day you'll be all powerful, that's not true. 
you learn how to challenge a system, to rally people behind you, to lead, change, do all those things by a little bit of courage every day, not by waiting for 20 years where you get in the exact position. You got a title, right? Oh, I'm now chief or I'm now this or that. It doesn't happen. When you're chief, you're being the same coward you've been for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> you won't do anything. Absolutely. I really appreciate being able to do this, um, to have you as a teacher, to have you as an educator, to be one of the people who helped shape me, to be able to sit down with you today. It's just been such a blast, exactly what I hoped it would be. Um, you're incredibly knowledgeable um, and share such insights, uh, again, seemingly so simple, like it's all obvious to you. But um, I think you create that space for people to want to consider university. Many of the listeners that I've spoken to talk about how uh, the professors always Always intimidate them but for individuals like yourself it's not intimidating it's encouraging and that's always how you've been to me um, Mark Lavond in our conversation talked about how you inspired him um, countless other people I know personally who've been inspired and that's not to count all the other people you've impacted over your career so thank you so much for being willing to come that's on. flattering but before we bring this to an end I want to uh, your listeners to know something about you so you mentioned that at some point you did a little research project with me on First Nations Court, right? And you also mentioned that how important it was for you to learn to challenge ideas and have your own and all this. Well, and I shared with you that sometimes I take real pride when my students challenge ideas, come up with their own things. You may remember that about a year ago, which was several years after we worked together, you sent me an email and you said, you know what uh, I thought was right and what you were telling me about the First Nations Court? I've had that experience now and I know better and this is what I really think and da-da-da-da. And I went, yes, you know, this guy's still thinking. He doesn't care what the authority is on, on these things. He's making his own opinion. And by the way, I agree with him, right? You know, that's a good idea, but it doesn't matter whether I agree with you. <laughs> what for me was what really fun was that Years later, you remembered, hey, this guy was giving me that way of thinking about it, and now I'm approaching it differently, and I think otherwise. And intimidating or not, you send me an email and saying, guess what? <laughs> you know, I, I thought that. Now I think differently. Yeah. Well, think about what it means for an educator to see that, that kind of feedback. I, I take it personally. I said, Aaron, that's my guy, you know. He's, look at what he's doing. That's what I was hoping he would do. I always believed he would, but now I get confirmation. Look at Aaron, he's doing it. And I get that confirmation from many others, right? Sometimes in ways I did not expect. Uh, not always perfect, but, you know, confirmation that, like, they, they develop things and skills and ways of thinking uh, that may not be mine, but that is theirs and I take a little credit in that, you know, not, uh, you, you do your own successes, but I take a little credit every time I see my my students succeed. You you do, and that's where I think referencing gets underestimated. Like, often students will go, I don't want to reference, but to be able to, when I'm telling a story, be able to reference someone like yourself. Um, I've referenced you several times on that topic and go, this is when I realized 
that the world is far more complicated. Like that milestone for me was that interaction with you where you were like, you're right. As an authority figure, as someone I was looking to, to go like, hey, I have this thought, like, is this right? And you being like, yeah, we don't have all the answers. Forever now, I go, we probably don't have all the answers. And that's a humble moment with John Haidt. It was him saying, you could be so much better and you're not, and it's a pity. And so you need to figure that out. And it was like, it was harsh in that moment. I was like, how dare, how could you say something like that? And maybe in today's culture, not something popular for people to hear, but I swallowed it. I sat there with it and I went, why aren't I? And then that's, and that's why I wanted to sit down with him and say, Hey, this was the impact you had on me years later. I still go to that moment as like, why am I like this? Why can't I be better? Why am I stuck in a high school mentality, in a university, how do I let go of that? And so individuals like yourself, I think it's important for the people experiencing the benefit to appreciate, to recognize, and to take that time to go, hey, you really helped shape my viewpoint, because then we have that as a milestone in our professional development, personal development to kind of grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Important, and I'll, I'll make one last loop. You know what you said John did with you, I've done with others, many professors have done that, and, you know, to really challenge the students, I know you can do better. That's not, you know, yeah. that's not up to your standard. That's you, you can do better. Today, I was talking about faculty who are uh, nervous about that. What if we had turned around and say, oh, you're saying that because I'm indigenous? And the next student is, well, yeah, sure, if, they, if I was in brown, you wouldn't say that. Yeah. And, uh, if I was the same religion as you, uh, you know, if I was not, you know, so you took it. And so John took a chance on you and you prove him right. Uh, but there's always a risk uh, that someone doesn't take it uh, or fights you back or turns that into something really ugly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what I said about professors yeah, I understand their concern and their fear, but they're not imaginary. Like today, every time you you take those bold moves with students and tell them the truth and put, try to push them as far as they can and all that, uh, you take a risk. But I don't think there was ever a time where being a good educator or good anything and professional was riskless. <laughs> There's always a risk, right? So the question is, can we create an environment where the risk for educators given the polarization and everything else that we talked about. It's not so great that you risk your whole career because you told a student, hey, I know you can do better than that. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. giving people the benefit of the doubt is probably more important now than it ha- has ever been to give people that, that trust because I had that. Um, there's a certain mentality. There's the look of, oh, you said something about me that offends me, so how do I disprove it? And there's the mindset of like, how do I take the best of what you said and learn from that? And I think that that's something it takes a conscious effort to build up um, and it can create so many opportunities. I don't think I'd be the person I, I am today if it wasn't for my my undergrad in criminology with individuals like yourself, John, Daryl, um, and countless other amazing professors that help mold you, help encourage you, and help you think differently about... Because there's often times where I think of the things I could pull on as being a victim that I choose not to, but it's because I want to be represented for the best of the things I do, not for anything that stood in my way. I want to be able to raise those things as like, hey, I overcame these things, you could too, but never as I had these barriers and everybody hates me. That can be very discouraging to people and make it 
like an abyss that you can't really get out of. And, and people like yourself have always encouraged students to think of themselves as bigger than they are. And I think that, that the benefits of that are hard to, to calibrate. And as you've said, have impacted many people's lives. So it's just, it's been such an honor to sit down with you. And you prove uh, at three hours and 18 minutes um, how important it is to do long form interviews. <laughs> okay. And thank you for inviting me. That was fun.